This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Happy July 5th, uh, the day after the great festivities as we celebrate our country's independence. And how better to do that than to just blow up a lot of things? I couldn't believe how many fireworks were going off last night. It was incredible. I had the best. So I went in Salt Lake City uh, on this really high peak and watched the entire valley. Wow. All the fireworks from the entire valley. And literally every second, hundreds of little explosions around the valley. Plus not to mention like the five or ten really big displays going on. So you didn't want to shell out the cash. No, to, I'm a yeah. cheapskate. So we th- there's nothing worse, though, than kind of putting your foot halfway in or putting one leg out the boat because we spent $40 on a really lackluster yeah. fireworks How'd that set. go for you? My girls were a little disappointed. <laughs> My entire neighborhood gets together. We had one father spend $1,500 no. on fireworks. What? Yeah. And we missed that. But we – but so what I have figured – I figured it out. We celebrate Americans, America's independence by purchasing expensive things and then we just watch it burn. Those firework uh, manufacturers, they're, they're loving it. What a brilliant game. Oh, yeah. Buy the package and then watch it burn. <laughs> just watch it burn. It's just the watch it burn game. And we brought this up last week too. Fifteen hundred dollars. That's, That's a lot a of trip money. to Disneyland. That really for is for a family. Totally no. And Sheesh. and yet, uh, and that was just one neighbor. I think our neighbors, probably two or three of them, spent five hundred dollars. Oh yeah. So this was. It's crazy. And and then there's the old, the old fire hazards. Oh yeah, right. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a tinderbox with it being 105 degrees around the west. And can I just say too, as far as getting Tuesday off, I could not figure out the entire day what part of the week it was. Yeah, no, totally I know. confusing. Nothing like a Tuesday holiday to confuse you beyond belief. And and, and now it makes Wednesday difficult. Yeah, because it's like I don't know what to do today. Is today Hump Day, like where I can just now ride out the rest of the week, or it feels like a Monday. I mean, my body is sore, tired, exhausted. I don't know what to do. Do I treat this like a Monday? Do I treat it like my Thursday? I don't know. <sighs> I, got, I got to wind it down. So I don't know. Do I wind it down? Do I wind it up? Which it, way do I wind? It was like it was like going into work on Friday, coming home, enjoying the time with your family, and then you have to go back in the next day. Yeah, that's what it was like. It boy, they and they all of the um, prisoners here at BYU Broadcasting. On Monday, got a reprieve. Our leader oh. said, "Everybody, go home. If you're not an essential employee, get out of here. Yeah, go I, get ready for the big weekend." Yeah, he said that at two o'clock. I know. Okay, everyone could go at three. I know. I, I always leave at two, and as I'm walking out, I got the email. I'm like, "What the?" And us three quarter time employees read that from home, th- thinking, "Oh, great, thanks." Yeah, I've been home for three <laughs> hours. Thanks, man. <laughs> Isn't it great? That was super nice. Yeah, I mean, it was. But you know, what else are you gonna do? But that's three – some people got three hours off. That was three hours off to go start their festivities, to get up to Wyoming to buy their Unless fireworks. you were essential. Yeah. And that, you don't need to go to Wyoming. You just go down to the grocery store. It's in the parking lot. Well, and then sometimes this would never happen at BYU, but that's a scary thing. When your boss asks you to determine if you're an essential employee, right? 
That was a test, not, really. I mean, at some companies, when you just when you've determined you're not by leaving early. Well, I'm worthless to the bottom okay, line. We'll thanks. see you. Good. You self-selected. Well, I'm supposed to have a meeting with Don today, and I oh, think yeah. he might say, now, it looks here like you took out took off early the other yeah. day. Does that mean mm. you don't think you're essential? Non-essential. Let's reassess. Well, they've been telling us we're non-essential forever. Yeah, they know. I mean, because they I mean in a good way. They don't mean it in a negative way. Just, right. you guys, that, could you guys, that ever they be They keep telling taken? Terry he needs to take more time off. Yeah, they do. How can you take that in a good way, though? I don't know. I don't know. Hmm. It's crazy. Well, it's good. And you made it, folks. So now you're back, and you're at it. Today we're going to be talking about the the social media spread, the virility. Is that is that the word virility or vir- virality? It depends on your regional vernacular. They don't I think know it's virility. Down to virility. Virility yeah. of social media. We've seen and we've talked about it on the show before with uh, United Airlines, with Uber. You make one mistake today and you're in trouble because it, it'll spread through social media. We're going to show you today how it happens. What is different today that allows one message to really bring down a company, in Uber's case, to lose 200,000 app users in one day? It's a big deal. They've actually had multiple instances where yeah. this has happened. It's, and so now you have a, a – if you're, if you're more of a politically motivated person for whatever reason – yeah, you're probably not using Uber, but the vast majority of people are unaware of most of these right. things, and they're still using Uber. So and it's kind well, of this. Well, and we joked about United. It's the same thing. Like, are you going to not fly United if they give right. a good flight and they give a good discount? No, it's like, well, I'm going to save twenty bucks. I'm I mean, fly. you just well, you just carry some brass knuckles and a right some mace. <laughs> well, last week their engine caught on, or what was it Monday? Their engine caught on fire in Denver. Yeah, but who hasn't had an engine fire? Yeah, it's, it's fine. Denver? Are you sure it wasn't Phoenix? No, it was Denver. Mm. Okay. We'll be talking about that, PR and social media, those uh, the impact it's having on organizations around the country. Also uh, today, of course, some empty news, uh, news you didn't even know you needed to know. We'll get to some of that as well. Including a new sponsor. And a new sponsor. Mm-hmm. See, that's, we don't stop. We're getting sponsors left and right. Multiple Oreo flavors. Oh, and Oreo's still at it. Mm. Okay, and the thin Oreo. Now they some, have the thin Oreo. Some are gross. Of course. Of course. And many would say most of them are gross. Nah, there's a couple Nobody that might be okay. That. I love Oreos. We'll, uh, we'll get to all that, but first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's up? New York City police officer shot and killed while sitting in her police vehicle in Bronx this morning. A suspect allegedly approached without warning, shot her through the car window about 12.30 a.m. Absolutely unprovoked, said the commissioner of the New York City Police Department. She was a 12-year veteran, rushed to a nearby hospital, could not be saved. The mm. suspect was killed just a block away by two other officers. Police said one bystander was reportedly shot in the stomach during the attack and is in stable condition, so that's ongoing at the moment. North Korea conducted a missile test on Tuesday, their own fireworks, if you will. Wow. This happened to be an ICBM, but <laughs> it's fine. Uh, it could strike anywhere in the world. It's the type of a missile they were they were testing. Later Tuesday, CNN and NBC reported that U.S. officials believe the missile was, in fact, an intercontinental uh, ballistic missile, and Secretary of State Rex Tillerson released a statement declaring the launch a new escalation in the threat to the United States, our allies, partners, the region, and the world. Wow. So the launch was... What into the sea towards Japan? But it was like a six hundred mile missile or whatever. Oh yeah, didn't it fly like for forty minutes? Uh huh. So we're usually they're like halfway through that flight and it blows up and yeah, everyone goes, think, oh, they oh, can't everyone do it. Everyone thinks they weren't able to do this. Yeah. But. 
That's scary. Yeah. Uh, Tesla Motors will unveil their first mass-market electric car on Friday, two weeks earlier than expected. Wow. The company's chief executive, Elon Musk, announced the news late on Sunday, saying the production of the Model 3 will increase exponentially after its debut this week. 100 cars are slated for production in August, followed by... Uh, 1,500 or more beginning in September, 20,000 starting in December. He said the Model 3, priced at around $35,000, is expected to be able to travel 215 miles on one charge. The car's more affordable affordable price, about half what Tesla's luxury cars go for, is aimed at expanding the company's customer base and getting more drivers to shift to sustainable energy sources. Mm. That's They're ahead of schedule. Yeah. They, well, they went through the, the safety regulation rather quickly they thought it would take longer oh and they just and it just breezed right through and like oh okay so i guess we'll ramp up production uh other other auto news automaker volvo says the cars launching uh launch starting in 2019 will either be electric or hybrids they will get rid of their combustion engines the uh so now they're owned by a chinese company named uh, geely the first auto manufacturer to discontinue the production of its gas only vehicles really starting in 2019 this is the company plans to release three new all-electric cars by 2021 hold on is it it's all of volvo yeah all of their cars all their cars starting in 2019 will be electric or hybrid what yeah it's a big deal i don't know how you it's a big deal it, it seems like you could maybe uh, take a slower pace. Yeah, but slow down a bit. Maybe they don't want to. See what happens. Know. That's Just great. Just kind of jam it through. And finally, Joey Jaws Chestnut gulped, chomped, uh. and powered his way through a 10th title on Tuesday, continuing his record-setting reign as the chowing champion at the annual Nathan's Famous mm. uh, July 4th Hot Dog Eating Contest. He, uh, what, shoving water-soaked buns and wriggling Franks into his mouth on a hot sunny day on Coney Island board. Doesn't that just sound gross? Yeah, it's everything hot. about You're it. eating hot dogs, soggy buns. He downed 72 dogs uh. and buns in 10 minutes to beat his own record and hoisted the mustard belt for a 10th time. San Jose, California man bested up-and-comer Carmen Canati of Mays, uh, New Jersey, wow. who ate 60 francs and buns. Oh. That, was a, mm. that was his 24th birthday. Way to celebrate. Yeah, congrats. Uh, Miku uh, Sudu notched her fourth straight win as the women's competition. She ate 41 hot dogs and buns and beat out um, a woman from Tucson who downed 32 francs and buns. Mercy. So I, I watched an interview with Joey Chestnut. He says 70 dogs and buns and the water all together is about mm. 20 pounds. So what? he's putting away 20 pounds in 10 minutes. Where do you put it? It just sort of hangs out. He says for about four days, and then it's, oh. then it's gone. Uh, you would think that they would need to get rid of it like a half hour later. I don't know. I think they strip you of your title if you uh, yeah. lose your lunch there. You gotta Well, on, on the stand, you got to – Well, that's why you, uh. just, you just call an Uber car. Yeah. You get your little trophy, and Zip then away. you go to Uber, and you have them drive around the corner. Soggy buns. Yeah, because yeah. they have to soak them. Oh, it's just... That was your old college nickname, wasn't it? Soggy buns, yeah. yeah. yeah but was... that was for a different thing. It's kind of gross to watch. Apparently, PETA was trying to interrupt the uh, festivities. Why? Uh, you know, hot dogs. Well, I didn't... I, there's, I just, there's no animal. There's no hot animal dogs. in hot dogs. <laughs> Who knows what's in them? It's all fake. And could you imagine... Oh, the... but they're Nathan dogs, aren't they? The... So those are... These those are people... These people practice. Nathan dogs are people. Right? They practice for this event. So in the end, it's like, how many hot dogs do you actually eat? How many pounds of hot dogs did you eat yesterday? I ate one hot dog. I did too, without a bun. I ate a hot dog and I ate a hamburger and I'm done. I didn't have a hamburger. I had one drumstick. Oh, yeah. You were really big on your KFC. Yeah. 
K- kitchen fried chicken. Kitchen fried chicken. Yeah. It was, yeah. It's like Christmas in Japan. You get your kids. You only had one drumstick? Well, I wasn't hungry by the time dinner showed up at 4.45 because I got my In-N-Out burger at 1.45. Well, that, yeah, you kind of blew that. Well, I was waiting on my brother to get the burger to me. Oh. So then you only had one drumstick? Mm-hmm. Did you have any coleslaw? No. No. Why? That's the best. Really? Is a, it? A little vinegar in your body? Mmm. I had fish tacos. Mm. Okay, now that would have been great. That was really good. Halibut. Just for the halibut. Well, you know, there's nothing better than halibut in Utah in the middle of July. Or the first of July. After it's been sitting there for a while, too. When was it caught? Utah's a really big fish capital. It's been on dry ice for how long? (laughs) I think they came from the Great Salt Lake. Um, Okay, so... Uh, did you know this? Couple things, just a little mm. facts that I found on on uh, CNN. Have you guys heard of CNN? Yes, it's uh, Donald, Tr- like Donald Trump. Country... Apparently, has been wrestling with him lately. Oh. Yeah. Um, the original Declaration of Independence was originally called the Dunlap Broadside. Huh. Kind of a funny name. It never took on. So the Declaration of Independence stuck. You know. Yeah, it's a better name. Three presidents have died on the Fourth of July. John Adams. Did you know that? No. no. Thomas Jefferson. I read his book. And James Monroe. Huh. Died. Fourth of July. Probably lighting off fireworks. Yeah. Obviously. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that's true. Um, did you, by the way, light, light off fireworks, Terry? I watched fireworks lit off. How much money did you spend? Zero. My brother-in-law buys them all. Oh. so just Went home for like an hour. He's just, just using just stuff up. Well, I mean, if he's going to go ahead and spend the money, I'll sit on his front lawn and watch it. Yeah. That's okay. Then I don't have to spend the money. I'll spend the money later. By the way, that was one of the benefits of having 4th of July on a weekday is that the fireworks only went until about 1030 as opposed to midnight. Oh, really? Ours mm-hmm. just seemed to keep going. When mm-hmm. I was watching the entire valley, so I ours yeah. didn't ever end. We just got tired of it. We left early, but we all sat in the car and just watched the fireworks as we drove down the freeway. It's like the entire valley exploding. Isn't it? It beautiful? was amazing. It is We're just amazing. like, this is the best show. We don't even have to sit anywhere or go anywhere. Just drive around the freeway and watch fireworks. $7.1 billion were spent on food and beverages. Mm. It's estimated. $7.1 billion. People only, would sp- only spent more on fireworks to watch them burn. Uh, people consume more than 19 million watermelons. Did you guys have watermelon yesterday? No. No. I had tons of watermelon. It was available. I skipped it. Yeah, well, you were trying to stuff those dogs. Just 23 million cases of beer. Hmm. That's sad. I had root beer, and boy, oh boy, was it good. 890 million pounds of meat. <sighs> so hmm. That's a big barbecue. By the way, did you know that the root beer at uh, Flay and W uh, tastes different than the Flay and W you can pick up from the grocery store? No. Do Check they have Flay of Fish at Flay and W? No. Love that. There's, uh, we ate so many hot dogs that you could stretch the hot dogs from D.C. to L.A. Really? It's a lot of hot dogs. In who's, one day. Does that, does who's that take, figuring this, this out? This is CNN. Does that take Joey Chestnut's impact? Yeah. On that, that situation yeah. there? Because okay. they, they pretty much covered the state of New York. Okay. See, now that should be his next record. He should have to walk from D.C. to L.A. eating hot dogs all along the way. Ugh. He wanted 75. He only got 72. Oh, what a letdown. Yeah, so, yeah. There's always next year. See, now, he sounds like he's (laughs) non-essential. This morning, he is. 
Yeah, totally. Uh, America, did you know that we have an official 4th of July city? An official city in the United States called the 4th of July city. Seward, Nebraska is the official city. Why so? For the 4th of July. It's just been designated. It just is. As it is designated, so it is. Why isn't it like Milwaukee? By the way, because Milwaukee, uh, they've got other things. Okay, well. Right? Didn't they have- The Brewers. Laverne and Shirley. Laverne and Shirley. (laughs) They already had their moment. Is that what you're saying? Okay, move on. You get your 15 minutes. Largest fireworks display is the Macy's show in New York City. Just Mm. some facts for you. You know. That's why we're here. To give you the information you didn't even know- you needed to know. We'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about social media and the spread and the virility of, uh, of just one story and how it could impact a company. It's a, it's a pretty powerful new weapon in the uh, arsenal for activists. Stick with us. We'll be talking about how to manage your PR and social media. Stick with us. Remember, we all saw the video of a bloody man being dragged off a United Airlines flight. And so if your fears of flying weren't justified by that video, it may have left you a little bit angry. Whatever your reaction, social media took that video and made United Airlines the biggest PR flub of the year. So here to speak with us more about uh, public relations and the impact that social media is having on organizations and their their uh, need to actually focus more and more on public relations is Dr. Anjana Susarla. She's a professor of uh, business at Michigan State University and has been researching um, a lot on this on this very topic of social media. And we're honored to have you here today. Dr. Susarla, thank you for your time. Thank you very much for having me. How, what changes have you seen in business um, when it comes to social media and, and, and the blowback that can happen in just one day because of one event and the impact it has on a business? You know, one of the big things that has changed because of social media is really the scale and the speed with which, uh, you know, consumers can react to something going wrong. You know, so what happens is, like we've seen in the case of that United Airlines, when the passenger was dragged forcibly off the airline. Yeah. They were immediately, you know, there were three or four different people who were, you know, videotaping it with their smartphones. And it went viral. And there was just this Twitter outrage. So, you know, it allows uh, people to do two things. One is everyone needs a reason to rent, right? No one loves airlines. And it taps into this need that we all have to connect with others and say, look, this is something really bad that happened to me. And... That sort of outreach can just become, you know, global. It can just cascade. Um, It can start off with just a few, one or two people, and then just get into the thousands and the millions within like hours. And I think that's really the impact of social media. It's interesting because we now, I never thought of it that way, but we, everyone has a need to connect and a need to vent. But so now we can more readily, more easily commiserate with each other's pain um, what, what is it that makes it so viral? What What is it that – because a lot of people have probably complained about an airlines, but very few got the attention that United Airlines got. What was the difference? 
especially in the case of this incident, you know, we've all been there. We know that we we know that airlines, you know, are not exactly treating customers great. And in you know the particular incident, I think probably connected more with everyone so much because you know the it's clear that the customer was so much like you know in the right, and we all felt like we've been there, we've had enough, right? Yeah. The, um, it's you know it's called a social contract with companies, right? We believe in companies. We um, have loyalty to certain brands. Because we feel that there is kind of a, you know, there's a social contract between an individual and a company. I, uh, I'm loyal to this company or this airline because, you know, I trust them to do the right thing. And when we feel that they broke that, um, you know, they broke that, uh, the pledge or they broke the trust they have with us, then we are angry. And social media allows that anger to just spread, you know, and mm-hmm. go viral and become like a wildfire. I yeah. think that's really... And, and I guess part of this gets into, like, social activism in a way, because we we use social media as a way to to try to activate change, to try to create a change. And But did we not have... I guess, is it just the tool of social media is so much bigger or do we actually have more activists going on and more activism? Um, You know, I think there's definitely more. um, I think that's both. On the one hand, social media makes it possible for us to, you know, as we talked about, a very small number of individuals can really trigger very large uh, changes or I wouldn't say change, but you can get a lot of immediate visibility because of social media. I think, you know, Uber uh, had this problem in January where there was a delete Uber, which uh, tweet campaign that went viral. And it started with just one journalist mm. tweeting about it. And then, it, you know, it just within a day, I think there were 200,000 people, 200,000 who deleted their Uber accounts. Can you imagine wow. that happening 10 years yeah. No, yeah. I mean, because we yeah. had big, we had like the Exxon Valdez you talked about yeah. in, in your writings. And mm-hmm. I mean, we had other major issues with, uh, with I mean, um, yeah, corporations, but none of them had this, the power of and the virility of social media. Yes, the power and the virality and, uh, you know, the immediacy as well, I would say, because it's something that happens right now. And, you know, People will talk about stuff, uh, you know, they say in the office, in the water coolers or at the water cooler. Now that stuff just becomes, uh, you know, immediately we, we just take our smartphones and we start talking about it to our friends and, you know, or even maybe uh, these online conversations on Twitter or, you know, any other medium of communication. So I think that's the immediacy as well. It's something that's something you can do right now. Go and delete Uber. Go and do something. Yeah. Right? Get on it now. And is it um, because, too, we saw with the election and President Trump uh, yes. can, could, could so easily also bring up, for example, a company like Ford or some company that was about to export jobs, allegedly. And then all of a sudden, these PR companies had to face some major backlash just simply because the president brought them up. Is our our organizations, our companies getting better at understanding how to manage social media today? 
They definitely are because, you know, their survival depends upon understanding these um, online, you know, what we call the consumer sentiment towards the companies. And, uh, you know, for instance, I think one example I can think of is a company such as Disney. They are very sensitive to what their, uh, you know, what the consumers think about them. So, for instance, uh, if someone goes to a Disney store, you know, and little kid says, how come they're not enough? Uh, you know, there's a lot of princess stuff, but I don't see, you know, something else for, mm-hmm. you know, girls. And I think there was a, another famous example where that happened with Target. Where a little girl, uh, you know, was complaining about how come there's only princess stuff for, you know, little girls want to be superheroes too or some such. And um, Target acted on it very immediately. The, you know, these companies do monitor, right? So if the the... Uh, literally what companies need to do is they have to have the ear to the ground and really monitor these conversations as they're happening. And thanks to, you know, so much of uh, technology, big data and analytics, uh, we have the power, we have the ability to do that, monitor these conversations and keep listening. And a bad incident or, or, you know, something that happens can actually be an exercise for the company to take responsibility and actually make it, you know, something a force for the positive. Mm. Say, look, this is how I can address your concerns. This is how I can rebuild your trust, right? And, Boy, it's so really, it can become, a, yeah, it's like weight training. It, it Enough resistance helps strengthen you. Yes, I think that's absolutely, you know, I completely agree with that analogy. Um, you know, and I think companies need to figure out how they can't break, right? So here is all this power of activism and consumer outrage, but here I can do something about it as well. Yeah. I, I mean, and because when you all of a sudden think that you can lose, you know, um, $100 million in market cap or you can learn, you could lose 200,000 users of your app, th- these little mistakes become very, very expensive mistakes. And I guess, do you sense we'll have more and more of them in the future? Do you sense that uh, this is just, a you know, an activism bubble? Um, you know, that remains to be seen, um, right? Because, um, you know, there are people who criticize the online activism by saying that it is more, um, I think there's a phrase called slacktivism. Huh. I don't know if you've heard. Yeah. It's just, we're not really doing any meaningful action. We're just going and tweeting about it. So ultimately, will this um, lead to some um, sort of change in how corporations behave? I would say the one recent example where social media has changed something is actually Uber, where um, there was a completely different, but there was, um, uh, there was a woman who was an engineer, and she wrote a post about this pattern of sort of gender um, you know, harassment at Uber. Mm. And now that has um, really led to a lot of conversations where, you know, many women felt that they could come forward and say, look, uh, the Silicon Valley culture is, uh, you know, it tends to have its drawbacks in terms of maybe not um, inclusive enough um, towards, um, you know, women or there's there's certain issues that need to be addressed. And um, there's at least more, you know, we can see that suddenly more people are talking about it and companies are trying to do something about it. 
so it could be you know a catalyst social media could be um, you know could change things i think one thing beyond um, companies that has actually social media has impacted a lot is actually politics yeah. you raised the issue of president trump and some people call president trump the first twitter president hmm it's true so you know he really has tapped into you know a lot of um, what people are concerned about and no other politician is talking about and has 30 million you know twitter followers or whatever or yes. social media followers and yes. now can take the message directly to them instead of having to even go through the filtered what he would say is like the filtered press yes and you know whether you agree or disagree or you know whichever we have to understand what that means for the political process correct yeah and well he also can be a bully right i mean he, he, you could when you have such power you could be a bully uh, and and almost intimidate. It almost seemed like at the beginning of his presidency, there was an intimidation going on to certain companies to to do what he needed them to do, to get on board, to save jobs. You know, I mean, and so, boy, I mean, it's a it ends up becoming a whole different ball game. Yes, I think the whole different ball game is the main issue that you know politicians, especially, and in fact, I think one, I've um, listened to a recent interview where President Trump actually talked about this. He mentioned that, you know, his opponent outspent him and spent a lot of money on, you know, doing a lot of things that ultimately didn't really, um, you know, have the necessary effect. So it's not like, um, you know, Hillary Clinton did not have a good, um, you know, um, message. Yeah. Or, uh, it's it's really the effectiveness with which she could get her message versus how he could get his message. And what that means for voter, uh, you know, voter turnout, voter engagement. Um, so the whole political process. So what is, um, you know, beyond uh, the uh, issue of companies and uh, connecting with consumers, I think this is the larger issue of how we are, what is the civic engagement that's going on? How does social media change it? You know, yeah. and we already are seeing that uh, process underway. That's no. my feeling. Totally. That's really good. We're speaking with Dr. Anjana Suzarla, and she's walking us through the new, the, you know, the new social agreement, the new social contract, what it all means when it comes to social media and your impact to, to activate change with organizations. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion. Also, we're going to talk about why, what makes something so viral? What is it that actually turns an Uber story into 200,000 people deleting an app. Why does that happen? How does that happen? Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you understand not just your life, but uh, how your life is created through social media. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. Boy, you know what? You make one mistake as a company, and it spreads like a wildfire. On the phone with us is Dr. Anjana Suzarla. She's a professor of business at Michigan State University, and uh, she studies big dates, uh, service supply chain, social media, and entrepreneurship and innovation 
and also has won the Microsoft Prize by the International Network of Social Network Analysis Sunbelt at the Analysis Sunbelt Conference. And we're honored to have her on the show to help us understand what makes something go viral. Uh, Anjana, help us with that, because all of a sudden, you know, you know, I, I, there's a lot of people trying to make things go viral, but they don't work. And yet uh, Uber doesn't want something to go viral, and it went viral. What is the key to making it go viral? Well, you know, the number of things. Um, one is um, there's just a handful of very influential people online. You know, something they tweet about definitely can make something go viral, correct? Um, but what I found in my own research was that some incidents, that, such as the Uber, its ability to trigger conversation, right, um, the more it's likely, it doesn't matter whether it's something positive or something negative, the more people it taps into something people um, feel strongly about. That is what makes things go viral. Interesting. Yeah, so it's got to hit that nerve. Yes, absolutely. That's interesting because uh, the the airlines thing really hits a nerve because even if the companies are trying to be good and helpful, to already have a seat and a ticket and then to have them try to take you off the plane, even yes, though you have exactly. a seat and a ticket – Boy, that strikes a nerve as unfair. So then, then what you're saying, then, then you know, and and I guess, I guess too, a picture is worth a thousand words, right? So if I, if I have a great video of this, and then I get it to a handful of really well placed, kind of more socially activist uh, Twitter leaders, then it could yeah. spread. Absolutely, you know, it's having those two things, having that initial people who watch it engage with it strongly enough and they care about it so they are literally like uh, ambassadors for you know this piece of uh, content or you know mm-hmm. the news and they are the ones who are spreading the message and they will spread the message if they care strongly enough about it so nothing like you know there were three four different videos showing the same incident I think that is really important for you know to understand what happened with the yeah. United Airlines. Three or four different people witnessing the same effect, and then yeah. they get it out, and then somehow it gets to these these bigger guardians, whatever we call them, the gatekeepers. Gatekeepers, absolutely. So it's the combination of having people feel strongly about something and getting it to the gatekeepers. And the people who are strongly concerned about something can also, you know, they're talking to each other. It's that whole um, having that sort of critical mass of conversations and that meets the influential people. That's really key to getting it viral. Because the, the a lot of these gatekeepers are journalists. They're maybe popular figures, movie stars, actors, whatever. But I guess when they, when they see... The turbulent uh, and the turbulence in the water because the conversations are so strong and there's a critical mass of conversation. They want to insert themselves into that conversation. Yes, absolutely. You're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, I think that increasingly uh, if you're looking at these celebrities, um, for example, the Kardashians or, you know, even someone like Beyonce, I'm pretty sure all these people have really great social media team who monitors, you know, yeah. this kind of stuff. As you said, to insert themselves into the conversation, uh, you know, that makes a difference. It makes probably for that celebrity, too, it's part of their image, you know, how they can 
they can put themselves out there. Right. Right. So it's it's really this kind of reciprocal effect. And that's all happening because of social media. Well, and it's it's interesting, too. Even if you have a really good team and a good sense, uh, like one of the Kardashian girls got in trouble with that Pepsi commercial, that Pepsi ad that then blew back on Pepsi because they, they didn't seem, Pepsi didn't seem to read it right. And then it yeah. too spread with virality through, um, through, the same, through the same way. And then Pepsi brought that ad down as fast as they could. Yes. And, you know, I think that was smart on their part. They just realized that, you know, the best thing you can do in that situation is you just contain the damage. Yeah, I guess that's good PR, huh? They they recognize yes. instead of instead of yes. making comments that made it worse, they just contained yes. the damage. Yes, and you know, that's exactly what United did wrong, because the CEO was basically, um, you know, he just had repeatedly several opportunities or several there were there were several moments in which he could have done something different. Yeah. Right. And, you know, Pepsi, on the other hand, was just smart about, OK, it didn't work. Fine. You know, we will we'll deal with it. And I think it's both. It's understanding the power of social media is also to be smart about, OK, it's a mistake. You know, let's kind of take this off the air. So I think that's also an important lesson for companies. Well, yeah. When the CEO made the whole reaccommodate, we were reaccommodating him statement. It dug a bigger hole. Do you sense that? Um, and I mean, then it becomes then it becomes Saturday Night Live fodder, and it becomes. Yeah. But uh, do you sense that the same uh, social media kind of activism movement? Um, it almost seems like there's kind of no principle to it. They'll bring down anybody they can. At any time they can, or is there a conscience to social media activism? Well, I would say that you know there um, ultimately the the things that would go really viral are the things that you know in the case of United we can all agree that it was not necessarily the best course of action you know behaving like that right now. There was a lot of discussion among the business press, you know, what could they have done? I think the best example was something like, um, you know, I think uh, Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, he said something in his letter to shareholders that, you know, we cannot just, the companies will do stuff based on whatever processes they have, right? But defending that process and saying, well, we followed the process, that's, I think, the bigger message for companies. I think when they do that, that makes the whole social media outrage worse. Yeah. So coming back to your question of is there a conscience or isn't there a conscience? Well, I think that's why I would just um, talk about the social contract being violated. I think when we perceive those, um, when our trust is broken, so that's the conscience part for social media. But at some aggregate level, that's, you know, there is some sort of filter going on where people have some genuine amount of, you know, uh, they feel the system is broken. And, you know, you could say that about President Trump's uh, supporters. Yeah. They feel that, you know, it's not working for them. system is not working for them. And uh, fundamentally, beyond all the conversations, there's, you know, online trolls, there's like all this questions about how civil is conversation on social media. But if you remove all that, I think at some level, the conscience, what's the ultimate thing driving, you know, and that there is ultimately a sense that uh, people feel that, look, I place trust in this 
company or in the political process and my trust is broken mm. and i think that's what's driving all this uh, these kind of incidents it's um and we even see it so if you know with the trump situation so many people that have felt disenfranchised um they they finally have a voice i guess in president trump um mm-hmm. but what you made a really good point that at some at some point there is this contract there's a, this agreement between the end user the end buyer and the company and mm-hmm. no matter what's happening you better be listening i guess is the lesson here we need to be listening or you're going to pay yes I completely agree with that. Yes. And, and even if you don't like what they're saying, or even if they're not informed, then inform them through your PR. But yes. but you better be listening to the pains they're expressing, because really, United, and I think it's important, like United Airlines is the one taking the brunt of the hit, but really all airlines should be paying attention to what happened to United, Absolutely. Um, right? Because it, there's there's mm-hmm. a lot of upset people that are tired of being you know treated like animals um, and corralled yeah. around. So so I, I guess how do you formalize that in the business model? And Jeff Bezos, it sounds like he's he's basically saying that, that very thing. You can't just leave it up to our policies. We've got to be learning. We've got to be adapting. Absolutely. And, you know, I would say that um, you, you were talking about the United incident, how it reflects on all airlines. One of the things that actually some of the research on social media suggests, right, for example, this Volkswagen, you know, there was yeah. this whole emission scandal. And that was also, you know, became viral on social media and became uh, such a prominent thing because of social media. Um, in the case of Volkswagen, now, when something like that happens, it reflects badly on all automobile companies. Right. Because consumers make that sort of, uh, you know, there's like a negative halo they will attribute to other car companies as well. Anytime there's a product recall or some negative incident that happens, if, uh, you know, a close competitor of Volkswagen thinks, oh, we are going to benefit, it's not necessarily the case, you know. It's not like all the disgruntled com- consumers will immediately come to Volkswagen's competitors. Yeah, They are probably saying, oh, these guys are no better, you know. And so it's very important to keep listening and to find ways to deal with, uh, you know, customers or, um, you know, whoever their sense of their feeling that our needs have not been met. So companies need to understand that. Mm. Do you have an example of a company that you feel like overall is doing a really good job with their social media and even taking the feedback, learning, growing, adapting. I mean, you mentioned Disney, um, mm-hmm. but give us some examples of, of some companies that might be leaders in the use of social media. I think Starbucks is a great example because, uh, you know, Starbucks is a company that not only is always listening, it has, it really respects its consumer's voice. And, you know, there are cases where Starbucks consumers actually take the initiative, you know. Um, there was this whole immigration ban, which is not really an immigration ban. It was made out to be an immigration ban on social media. Um, but, you know, in that case, there were some people who were not happy with Starbucks CEO because he was uh, took sort of this proactive stance. But when, uh, you know, people went on um Facebook and Twitter and all these places and we're talking about how we don't we want to boycott Starbucks. There were enough other consumers hmm. who just, you know, went out there and said, Let's go and drink Starbucks, you know, buy Starbucks. Interesting, yeah. And it's like Starbucks didn't have to do really much or didn't have to do anything. 
just let customers take the initiative and let this become, you know. And they created a discussion, right? They created a dialogue. Absolutely. So, you know, they created a dialogue and they have these very passionate and loyal uh, consumers who look at Starbucks as their extension of their lifestyle or extension of their, you know, ideas or philosophy or, you know, what have you. Um, so that's sort of creating that kind of, a, a, you know, um, a, a strong bond with the con- consumers by keeping them sort of constantly involved, right? That, that, I think that's a great example. Yeah, no, that is a great example. And really, I guess the perfect example of this uh, this social contract it, and maybe not even having to take a position as the company but allowing and facilitating the dialogue and and then I guess for being responsive like you were saying um, Dr. An- Anjana Susarla thank you so much and we appreciate you and your great work there at Michigan State University keep it up boy we're learning a lot aren't we as, uh, as, as social media takes off and continues to progress um, what are we going to do we got, uh, we got a lot of learning to do especially every company as well We'll take a break. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world, even on social media. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Um, You having a hard time managing your social media? Do you notice that you're just flat out addicted? In fact, they say the millennials cannot go longer than five hours without checking their social media. Many can't go an hour without uh, doing something with it. And so what on earth are you supposed to do, for heaven's sakes? Well, uh, in the the, uh, magazine The Atlantic, they have suggested that you quit social media every other day. One approach for people interested in breaking the compulsive checking habit is, okay, you don't have to quit. You don't have to go without. Just start taking an every other day approach. And what you're going to do is you're going to allow yourself to kind of digitally detox by just saying, I will only look at it on even days. I will only respond on even days. I will only post on even days. And then, you know, you'll have a really calm, relaxing, beautiful, non-social media day. And then you'll have your crazy, frantic, anxious social media day. And see what that does. It's a simple way, right? Um, I, I do that about once a week. I really, I really get into social media. And other than that, I pretty much don't go there very often. I for sure don't ever go there to post. But how about that? Just a simple little fast. And make sure, too, that you're very careful um, because of the virality of social media. You've got to be careful that you don't become just somebody that spreads the germs, right? So think about everything you repost. Think about everything you like. Make sure that you're happy with your kids, your grandkids, your great-grandkids, and great-great-grandkids knowing that mom and dad were standing for this thing or grandma and grandpa were standing for this point. And be willing to take a little break. Every other day. And hey, when you really want to get crazy, every third day, if you want to wean off of that crazy stuff. Anyway, fun stuff, helping you be better at it. That's the goal of the show. We'll take a break. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the program. Happy 5th of July to you. The uh, less celebrated day. The day of recovery. The, the day. The boxing day of Independence Day. Yes. Will you go sweep up all the fireworks that you shot off from the night before? Holy cow. It looks like a war zone in my neighborhood. It's a lot of carnage. Plus, usually, like, when we mow the lawn, we'll find a bunch of Roman candles. Oh, yeah. Somehow made it from everyone else. We don't purchase any fireworks, and so we, but we get to clean up. It's kind of neat that way. I was very responsible. I put the fireworks all in one small area and then doused them with water afterwards and then wow. promptly threw them away in the trash. Really? Mm-hmm. See, our neighbors leave theirs out to kind of cool down. Let the other cars drive over them, kind yeah. of pummel them into mm-hmm. just dust, and then they blow away. It's kind of nice. That's really the better way to do it. <laughs> Less work. What is it about us that we we live in this great country and then we think, okay, let's create a lot of smoke, pollution, let's burn things, and then let's just leave a lot of garbage out. Have you ever lit something on fire and then had it explode? Uh, and did I? You mean like like it surprised me that no, it exploded? No, no, no. Like, you, it was supposed to explode. No, yeah, I love it's that. It's kind of fun. No, it's really That's fun. That's really the entire mental process. Here. And it's a brilliant marketing mm-hmm. strategy by these companies. Right. Buy our stuff, it will explode, and you watch it burn, and you just keep paying us. The cleaning up part of it, ah, it's too late to clean it up. We'll do it in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> we're tired. So I mentioned to you that our fireworks were pretty lackluster. So to make them more exciting, I put a few of the, you know, just the really tiny ones inside the box that they came in and lit the box on fire. Oh, yeah. So then when those took off, it was it so was you, pretty cool. You started making your own fire. Yeah. <laughs> there's something, I think, wow. there's something about human nature where not only do you want it to burn and explode, but you're like, maybe we could make it explode even more. Yes. Yeah. Just a little kerosene, a little whatever you have. Just douse it with gas. Go. Some gasoline <laughs> fire. And then then you see the crowds of kids walking around the neighborhoods. That always scares me too. Like what are they doing? Right. With what's with what what are they doing with that M80? Cuz we're missing an M80. I'm sick of dynamite basically. Where did that go? Hmm. Oh, I'm getting old. Man, we got a lot to talk about today. Today we're going to be talking about uh, how to make sure you're not setting your kids up to be an emotional eater. You know? Like I had to eat because somehow my food and my plate were connected to people in Africa. Yes. <laughs> so it's starving. like yes. you got to eat it because you don't want the African people to die. This is true. So you know, be careful. Or, or more respect the fact that you have food and other people – you know, it's not a luxury yeah. that they have every day. So I don't use that argument anymore because I'm trying to eat better. And so I say, eat your food. There are starving people in this household. Mm. Ah, that's really, that's moving. Mm. Bring yeah. it home. Because you right. did have KFC and you only had one drumstick. Yeah. It's kind of a downer. Kind of a downer. So we will, we'll be talking about that. But also, when your kids get emotional, do you hand them a you're, Twinkie? You're sad. Here's a donut. Here's a donut. That'll make you happy. That makes mama happy. No, it's the iPad. We hand them the iPad. So now instead, some kids are getting food, and that makes them kind of addicted to food, emotional eaters. Some get the iPad. They're emotional 
gamers. Think about it, parents. So we'll be talking with an expert about that. Also, of course, getting to uh, what we call the empty news, the Matt Townsend news, all the headlines that you didn't even know you needed to know, some of which you really better be paying attention to. Watch out for seagulls. Apparently, they're attacking kids on schoolyards. They can be jerks. Yeah. You got to watch out for that. That's all you need is an aggressive seagull trying to carry your child away. Also, um, a driver rams into a police headquarters. Maybe not the smartest move, unless you're trying to break in. And we've got a new sponsor coming up um, and a story about what how to get rid of skunks and skunk smells. If a skunk... If you've done been skunked, then you better listen up because we have a new sponsor that can help. It's it's insurance in a way. We'll get to that straight ahead. But first to Terry South with the headlines. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? So were it not for Illinois' flirtation with a junk credit downgrade and New Jersey Governor Chris Christie's luxuriating on a closed public beach, the budget woes of U.S. states may not have assumed their annual spot in the dustbin of public policy history. This is from Bloomberg. They got very eloquent with their yeah, they writing there. But basically, Illinois almost went bankrupt and uh, New Jersey closed their beaches, but Chris Christie was out there hanging out and everyone else couldn't use the beach. And all of that's because the the states couldn't figure out their budgets. You got to have a budget. So there was some shutdowns and you know things are happening and they became news, but usually that stuff isn't news. No. No. But it says this year, spending strife is unusually widespread with 11 states missing their July 1st fiscal year deadlines. In a poor economy, states often free spending while lawmakers and the chief executive work out how to plug budget holes. This year, standoffs come amid rocket or record stock market gains and low national unemployment. So there really shouldn't be this sort of strife. It should yeah. be maybe easier to deal with the budget issues. Some disagreements even split members of the same party in Delaware. With a Democratic governor and legislature, they finally struck an agreement two days late. Uh, it's dealing with government spending in Wisconsin. It was led by – the whole state's led by Republicans in mm-hmm. Wisconsin. But they were all hung up on transportation and school funding debates. Yeah. They're not sure how to fund it, and so strife within their own party kind of paralyzes the actual getting the budget accomplished. So Come it's on. kind of weird. It's across the whole yeah, country. It is. 11 states. Warner Brothers and the estate of the author J.R.R. Tolkien announced Monday that they amicably resolved an $80 million lawsuit over the alleged digital exploitation of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. The Tolkien estate uh, book publisher HarperCollins filed a lawsuit against Warner Brothers in 2012, allegedly uh, alleging that the company had breached contract by marketing online games, slot machines, and other gambling-related merchandise based on Tolkien's books. Yeah. The estate claimed the 1969 rights agreement entered by uh, entitled the studio to create only tangible merchandise associated with the books. Not gambling. Not gambling. It's not associated with gambling. So that well, wasn't there a, a character named uh, Gambloff or something? Could have been. Could have been. <laughs> Another news for Gambloff. the number is now up to 44 states that are refused to provide certain types of voter information to the uh, White House administration's elect, what, Election Integrity Commission, according and, to CNN. So they, this is Trump trying to prove that there was election fraud and yeah. 44 states. In fact, if you'll notice, most of those like GOP-run states, too, right. are saying... We'll give you whatever's public. Some have laws with privacy yeah, involved not, with voter registration. You're not getting our info. data. Even the uh, the guy running it is the attorney general from uh, 
Kansas, and his state was one of the first ones to step up and go, uh, no, not, not doing not this. State leaders and voting boards across the country responded to this letter that was sent out to all 50 states with varying degrees of cooperation from altogether rejecting their quest to expressing eagerness to supply public information. They're just not into it. No. Like Texas went, no, there's no way we're giving you all that information. Why? Why would I do that? And finally, because of 4th of July and people blowing stuff up, we always get these funny stories of what people decided to do with their fireworks. Yeah. And varying degrees of danger. Uh, a Michigan garage was uh, reduced to a pile of ashes on uh, Tuesday after a homeowner attempted to use fireworks to remove bee, a bee's nest from the building. Oh, boy. A homeowner was doing something with a smoke bomb, trying to get the bee's nest out of the garage, the fire chief in the local town said. No one was injured, and the fire was contained to the garage and a neighboring fence, sparing the home and property in the neighborhood, probably. The homeowner, uh, Mike Tingley, said that while he was saddened by the damage to his garage, he was glad it wasn't worse. Wow. Very fitting name, too. Tingly. That's what it feels like when you got a bunch of bee stings. <laughs> Did, um, so they just want to smoke, the, smoke them out? Yes. I mean, that, there's that moment that you're like, you're sliding the smoke bomb into the uh, beehive. Yes. If that's how we did it. I'm not sure how Yeah, we did there's it. just that thought that maybe, maybe I shouldn't do this. The, the smart thing there was the story didn't describe the process. Because you know somebody will go, yeah. oh, I'd do that well, better. I, we got a beehive. See, I thought maybe he had a Roman candle yeah. or any other of these high-flying fireworks and just kind of set that under the beehive oh, yeah, and lit bam, it up. Bam. Yeah, no. Um, we... We went swimming, and a boy that went swimming with us got – he was stung by a a hornet. Hmm. It was pretty sad. So what you're saying is don't swim. I, I didn't I, – so I don't swim that's, anymore. I think that's the moral of the story. I mean like – I don't know. I don't know what it is, but I'm never – whenever somebody says, let's go swimming. Yeah. I actually – I think, oh, that's great. I'll read because then I can go read. I went swimming. I love it, but yeah. I want to just go read. But they all want to swim. And then this cute little boy got stung. But apparently he gets stung everywhere he goes. See, I, I went swimming indoors. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it was just me and my kid in there. And then about 15 minutes later, somebody else showed up and then some other people. And we left. Then it got weird. Yeah, we're like, yeah, eh, there's too many people in the pool. Was this, was this, this was an indoor pool. Yeah. I was thinking hotel. like a little. It was great. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So I went shopping for my own fireworks. And the best name for the firework that I didn't buy it, but the best name that I saw on one of the fireworks was Red, White, and Boom. Oh, that's a good one. Mm. Yeah, I think I saw that one. You tested well. Did you buy your fireworks in a tent? Yes. So you went to the tent. It was one of those things where it was like, oh, if I would have spent 10 more dollars, we could have gotten the big Costco pack and yeah. they would have shot all the way up into the air. That's right. So yours, yours were pretty much – yours were all grounded. Yeah, but the aerial, the aerial ones uh -huh. were dead silent – yeah. And uh, my daughters were so disappointed. But the aerial ones, again, I watched uh, from a really nice perch overlooking the entire Salt Lake Valley. And there were literally every second mm -hmm. hundreds of the aerial ones going off everywhere. It was amazing. So I thought with all the fire danger and the heat that we'd be not having these fireworks. But no. apparently you can we're burn. All, we're all pyros. Burn, baby, Burn. Disco Inferno. Burn, baby, burn. That's what my mom used to say as she would cook us dinner. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Was she talking to you or the food? The food. Okay. Yeah. I, uh, I I was famous once in church for stealing a Johnny Carson quote. I think it was Johnny. Maybe it was Jay Leno. Hmm. He said, 
I think he said something like my mother my mother was a great cook. Wasn't wasn't a great cook, but I mean she knew her limits and she used a smoke detector to as a timer for her cooking. Oh, okay. And she what she would do is wait till the smoke detector went off and then she'd wait five more minutes and she'd know her food is done. There you go. <laughs> so he said that once on like Johnny Carson and then I stole that joke and took it to church the next day, which was Mother's Day, mm. and used that exact same joke. Wow. I didn't know you couldn't steal a joke. Right. And then you didn't have dinner that night. And then amazingly, that's when my mother started to ignore me. I think she called it <laughs> shunning. That's when the shunning began. Hey, seagulls force school children to retreat from the playground after vicious attacks. By the way, have you ever had a bird mad at you? Have you ever like walked by a goose that didn't want you near his lake or oh, whatever? Yeah, yeah. And they just they I chase mean, you. Yeah. It's scary. Birds are aggressive. Birds are scary. We once came out to our car and there was only bird dew on our windshield. <laughs> Nowhere else around the car, just like shot after shot after shot. On your car. On the car. And is, you told me, I think you, we talked about this. Wasn't there etched in the bird doo doo the word red rum? Yeah, it was either that or you're next. Ah. Uh, yeah. Was it in like a sharp little kind of claw talon thing? <laughs> Um, seagulls force primary school pupils to play indoors on one of the hottest days of the year after they dive-bombed school children. The goals were removed from the primary school uh, in Gwynedd, Wales, after several attacks on their students and staff. For over a year, the goals had been nesting on the roof of the school. However, they became increasingly violent after chicks fell from the nest last week. Fear of the sharp beaks led the school to enact a lockdown. Ooh, a beak down. Those are the worst. The lockdown because of a beak at least uh, twice a week. At one stage, parents were too scared to pick up their kids from school as the goals persistently attacked anyone who crossed their paths. Man. They should have brought a uh, loaf of bread. Yeah. That's how you get them. I love this. One of the great songs by uh, BLR, Bad Lip Reading. Seagulls, stop it now. Nothing scarier than a seagull when it's dropped a pup or a chick. (laughs) This is actually Yoda singing this. (laughs) It's a great song. Is it what is it? What's the name of this? Really, seagulls stop it now. Yeah, you got. Yeah, it's a great song. Seagulls stop it now. Uh, so watch out for those dive bombing seagulls. They'll get you every single time. They'll you know they'll just get you. Hey, a Pennsylvania family is rebuilding after a skunk spray ruins their home. Uh, the family is slowly rebuilding their life and their home seven months after the skunk sneaked into the home and ruined it. Scott Gray says the family's plight is worse than if their home was ruined by fire because their insurance won't cover the damage. Apparently, there's no skunk insurance. Hmm. Unbelievable. Gray says the skunk apparently sneaked into the house through a doggy door and then spent three hours inside the family's Dogs uh, inside with the family's dog, spraying its noxious scent everywhere. The family threw away toys, furniture, appliances. They had to strip the house down to its wood framing to get rid of the odor. Unbelievable. 
The family had been living in a small apartment down the street while they rebuild. So far, they spent more than $30,000 out of pocket just because of a stinky skunk. Wow. It's a lot of money. Which brings us to our, our um, one of our new sponsors. And I don't think you know a whole lot about this sponsor, no. so I'm interested yeah, to hear your thoughts. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, I just think if, if you could have some insurance against skunks, it'd be fantastic. Well, you're going to love this product that they have available. Let's hear it. We here at Allstink believe in the importance of protecting your most valuable asset, your family. And that means protecting your most valuable sense, your sense of smell. That's why Allstink offers offensive comprehensive insurance. Now, what exactly does offensive comprehensive insurance cover? Let's say Aunt Edna stops by for a visit and removes her shoes. Believe it or not, the lingering bouquet from Aunt Edna's funky feet is covered. Or how about when it's April Fool's Day and your old college roommate sneaks in and hides an open can of tuna fish in your vent that you don't find for two weeks? That fishy foulness is covered. And if you've always been a stinky person yourself, go ahead and purchase our package anyway. Because Offensive Comprehensive also covers pre-existing conditions. If you're still unsure as to what this insurance covers, just remember, if it's offensive, we cover it. All Stinks Offensive Comprehensive Insurance. For when life stinks. Welcome back, friends. You know, surveys reveal that 38% of adults say they eat more when they're stressed or they're sad. The problem is that emotional eating increases your risk of becoming overweight later in life. Regularly eating a large number of additional calories for reasons other than hunger won't do your waistline any favors. So here to help us with some research that they've been doing is uh, Siljay Steinsbeck. And uh, Siljay is an associate professor at the Department of Psychology at the Norwegian Norwegian University of Science and Technology. Um, And we're honored to have him on the show. Thank you so much for being with us, Siljay. Thank you for inviting me, and I'm impressed by the pronunciation of this long, long name, but it's, it was actually quite correct. Oh, good. Thank you. And it, uh, that's the, my team helping me make sure it sounds right. Siljay, this is – this. It's. We, I guess we don't want to, you know, make parents feel like they're ruining their children by, uh, by how they're parenting, except how we teach our kids to manage emotion makes a big difference in their life, doesn't it? Yes, it makes a difference because, I mean, experiencing negative emotions is part of being a human being. So it's important that children learn how to deal with negative emotions, like being sad or, or getting angry. And eating is, is not the way to, to handle feelings. Right. How, what, what are you noticing in your research? What, what, I mean, I guess the problem is when we have emotions, a, a parent might, you know, here, honey, have a... Snickers or some candy bar or what are parents doing that might be setting up their child to become an emotional eater? We wanted to specifically test whether parental emotional feeding, as you suggest, giving them a lolly if they're sad, if it leads to emotional overeating in children. So we analyzed data from the test cohort, which is a study of nearly a thousand families in Trondheim, Norway. And we ask the parents to rate the emotional overeating of their children as well as their own habits of giving sweets or snacks to calm or cheer up their children. Um, and parents answered these, these questions whether kids were 6, 8, and 10 years old. 
And we found that emotional feeding is indeed a risk factor for children to develop emotional overeating habits because offspring of parents who reported to use food to soothe their child displayed more emotional eating over time. Mm, that's scary. And, and, and how much more? I mean, does it, does, it, does it get more every year that they're doing it? Does it is it just a little bit yeah, more? How does yeah, that work? That's, that's kind of how it works because when we, we, we statistically test whether it actually predicts uh, more emotional eating two years later, accounting for the, the baseline, so to speak, of emotional eating. So the level of emotional eating increases. Um, but the, the, in- the interesting thing is that it also goes the other way around. Um, as you know, children are not only passive recipients of their parents' behavior, they also affect their parents. And our studies show that parents whose children were more likely to emotionally overeat displayed more emotional feeding over time. So parents' emotional feeding promoted emotional eating in children, and children's emotional eating promoted parents' emotional feeding. So there's a reciprocal, they kind of reinforce each other's behavior, so to speak, like like in a vicious circle. Well, yeah, and then... But then you can almost see how this becomes uh, kind of a family tradition, uh, something we don't yeah, mean to do. Yeah. But it, the tradition is when we're stressed, when times are tough, we all start eating. Yeah. And also, you know, parents affect the children's eating behavior by the way they model eating behavior. So if uh, if a daughter see, sees her, her mother regularly eating sweets when she's distressed, well, that's how she learns also how to, to deal with emotions, that it, it helps eating. And it's, it's no big deal if you have a chocolate now and then to, to soothe yourself. I mean, most people do yeah. that. That's perfectly fine. As long as that is not your regular way of, of uh, in, or your typical strategy to handle negative emotions. And, and parents should not feel bad if they know and then give a child this lolly or whatever, ice cream, whatever, the thing is, what do they do on a regular basis? Because parents are not supposed to be perfect; they're supposed to be good enough. Right. That's such a great. That's such a great statement. They're not supposed to be perfect. They're supposed to be good enough. I guess the key to this is emotional management. At some point, we we probably need to deal with the emotion before we engage food or anything else. You know, to take away the pain. Yeah. Yeah. If a child cries or is upset, put him or her on your lap, depending on the age, of course. Give him a hug, uh, talk to him, try to calm him down, just not trying, not, not, don't tell him it's nothing to cry about or, or put yourself together. It, it's allowed to be sad or upset, and it's that the child needs to experience that it's okay for my mother and my father that I'm actually, am upset, that I feel this way, it's okay. And in that way, these negative emotions turn into be more handleable, you're not, they're not scary, but if your parents get so upset every time you're upset or sad or angry, you learn that, well, feeling like this, it's dangerous. My parents get upset. It's, it's not allowed in our family to, to have negative emotions, and that's not good for your mental health. That's well, that's, sure. And that's not, that's not real in life, right? I mean, you're going to have yeah. emotions. And I guess part of, uh, part of this, too, is um, the distraction, like – we try to I just I used to just think I'll just distract my kid from their pain. Um, mm. But it might be better to just let them. But a distraction could easily be the food. But it could also be nowadays technology here. Here, play with my phone. And mm. all of a sudden you're mm. giving them some other 
um, I guess, emotional tool to distract them. In the end, uh, if we can't deal with our emotion, I, I never thought of my family as as emotional eaters, but boy, you could see that there are comfort foods, and all of a sudden, your whole social life could become just eating. Mm-hmm. And it's it's as you say, one shouldn't try to avoid negative emotions. Children le- need to, to learn how to deal with emotions. I mean, sometimes we need to just shut the shut ourselves up and you have to go to work even though right. you feel totally bad but but you need to know how to handle sometimes you need to cry or you need to talk to someone or go for a run or or even buying a new pair of shoes might help but the thing is that you need a range of strategies to handle negative emotions and not trying to avoid them because they will be there if you avoid them they will somehow go into headaches or stomach pains or whatever Hmm. Is do, you, do I guess do you know yet in the in your study is 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 there a traditions of this is there a history of this where one family might be more inclined to hand it down from multiple generations? Uh, we haven't we haven't possibility to and just to to examine that in our study, but it is well known that you I mean habits uh, runs in families if if yeah, and daughters of children or mothers who who often are on a diet, they're more likely to be dieting themselves and so on to the next generation. So how it is regards to emotional eating, I'm not sure because it has never been investigated, but I guess it's the same as when it comes to other kind of eating behaviors. Um, yeah. Yeah. Is it, um, maybe define for us what is emotional eating, uh, because some may not know that they're doing it. Emotional eating is also known is is the tendency to eat more in response to negative emotion, um, and is among uh, and it's among the eating behaviors associated with overweight and disordered eating. So, and although the most biological and natural response to emotional distress is actually to eat less, as children mature, they tend to emotionally overeat rather than undereat. Hmm. Um, and the thing is that when people emotionally overeat, they usually go for sweets and palatable food. I mean, you don't feel like having carrot if you're upset. Right. You feel like having, and that's why, that's because our brain is rewarded by this sweet and fat food, and it's not rewarded that way by a carrot or other vegetables. And and then do they end up, so they kind of binge eat, but then do they end up, uh, you know, then, then bulimia kicks in, or they might do other things to then get rid of the food. Yeah, if you overeat, but so and yeah, so emotional eating is linked. There is an increased risk for later eating disorder symptoms such as bulimia, as you suggest. Um, but it, it doesn't always have to be huge amounts of mm. food. But it's just the way that you you ha- I feel upset, so I have a chocolate and I feel better. And it's also because we, our brain, as I said, responds to that. So it 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 actually kind of works. But if you that's why I say it doesn't matter if you have a chocolate now and then to soothe yourself. The problem is if you do that all the time, you feel, if I feel bad, I eat chocolate because that is going to be a lot of chocolate for most people. I mean, sometimes you feel upset quite long periods of time. Right. And that's why it's linked to, to all weight and obesity because you, you eat much more than you actually need. And um, so, I mean, because too, chocolate and food has... I guess it has the psychological benefit, but there's also chemicals involved. 
So it, yeah. d- does this lead yeah. to other dependencies later in life? Um, I'm, I'm not familiar with the studies. I've actually seen um, whether it's an increased risk, but it's it has been shown by you know uh, MRI. Um, yeah, ways of taking pictures of your brain that it's the same areas of your brain that are rewarded uh, when you eat mm. palatable fat, sugar, food, as uh, as in other kinds of addiction. So some some researchers study these behavior as a way as an addictive behavior. Yes. Is so this and is some something people are more responsive actually. Yeah. Are, are more easily triggered, kind of. And and I guess then too. This this then changes your habits going forward. It changes how you would raise your children, and I guess it sets a lot of us up to eating disorders, but also uh, unhealthy eating. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and it, I mean that. I don't know what it's like in Norway or other places, but I do know in the United States it's pretty ugly as far as our obesity crisis and. Are, we already have bad eating habits. Do you do you associate a lot of our bad eating habits to kind of this emotional eating? Um, at least emotional eating is one among other aspects of what we call emotional eating behavior. Others could be um, um, in 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 a former study of our sample, we actually found that we tried to see what what predicts why do some children. Uh, have a larger increase in BMI than others. In an, this is a, a community sample of children, and uh, one of the factors that affected um, the increase in BMI was um, the use of um, food responsiveness. It's a way. It's kind of um, that you are easily triggered by food, and you eat not because you're hungry, but because food is available. So, and you don't stop eating even though you're full, but you just continue eating because the food is available. Yeah. So it's, it's a way of eating not based on your inner need, your inner hunger or need for food, but it's because food is available. So, and, and people differ in regards to whether they ha- display this trait or eating behavior trait or not. And those who are higher on this trait, who are more likely to eat because food is available, regardless of whether they feel hungry or full, they are more likely to have a steeper increase in BMI than, than other kids. So, and the same goes to emotional eating that also predicted um, increase in BMI. So yes, there is a risk even in normally developing children um, to have a higher BMI over time if they display these, we, we kind of call them food approaching eating behaviors because they are is positively associated with overweight in, in children. Mm. What what advice then do you give us as parents uh, to make sure that we you know we don't we don't kind of generate the or, or push the drive for emotional eating? Also, what do we do to make sure that we don't we're not getting our kids to we're, we're getting them to approach food in a healthier way? Um. Parents should uh, model positive eating habits, not use food to soothe themselves, and they should actively teach children other ways to handle negative emotions, such as seeking comfort, get a hug, cry for a while in the arms of someone, or talk to someone. And parents should promote adaptive emotion regulation strategies, such as those I just mentioned, as such strategies are shown to promote mental health and well-being. Um, And... uh, these are much better strategies than giving kids food. 
Um, and it, it should all, it's, it's also important that food is, eating is not something you're good at or bad at. It's like, oh, you're so clever. You, had, you ate all your sandwich. You eat because you're hungry, because your body needs food, energy. So I advise parents not to reward their, their children's eating in, in any way and not use food as reward either because that also promotes more of these food approaching eating behavior which we know is associated with overweight. Interesting. We see it at, I even see it at church where if everyone will sit quiet in church we'll give everybody a cupcake. And exactly. <laughs> to all these young kids and then all of a sudden you realize that you're incentivizing them. You're using food as a reward. Interesting. Yeah, you are. Yeah. Boy, you and we go back home and change that habit. Yeah, exactly. And we don't yeah. even know we we didn't we don't know what that's going to do long term except it does put food in a, in a different category. Yeah. And and some people will say, "Well, when it, it works, I mean, if you emotionally feed a child, it it it's it's suited and everybody is is fine. So why not do it?" Well, exactly because it's associated with increased risk for overweight and eating distortions. So and you, your child needs to learn more adaptive ways of handling their negative emotions. That's why. Mm. And it seems like it's easier, right? These are easier ways of motivating, it, but easy doesn't necessarily mean healthy. No, that's, that's um, exactly the point. Um, and that's the hard thing about being a parent. It's, it's so much more fun and so much more easy to say yes to everything or no, don't bother about your lessons or don't bother about... Uh, brushing your teeth, but you have to think about what is good for my child in the long run, not just here and now. And sometimes we don't have the energy or we have a bad day, so we we are inconsistent, and that's just fine because we don't have to be perfect. Yeah. But, but as long as we, in general, have a focus on what's good for my child in the long run, not only here and now. It's powerful. Well, Siljay, we appreciate you and your great work. Again, uh, Dr. Seal J. Steinsbeck, an associate professor at the Department of Psychology at Norwegian University of Science and Technology. She's also a clinical child and adolescent psychologist and has been performing research um, on, on our emotional eating habits. Uh, boy, a lot to learn, huh, as parents. Again, it's, it's just you. We know you're trying to be the best parent you can be. Now let's just get more informed and find healthier ways to create motivation for our kids. We'll take a break, folks. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Welcome back, friends. As we uh, were just talking about um, emotional eating, it's hard to be a parent, which is why if you're fortunate enough to have a, a partner in the process with you, a co-parent, boy, oh boy, are you lucky. And um, now, if you just happen to have a partner, a, a spouse that has yet to take on the role of co-parenting, maybe that could be a great goal that you two work on, you two figure out a way of how we're going to split our parenting duties. You know, many of us are looking for a 50-50 split in parenting. Some of you would just, hey, I'll take a 70-30 split. If my partner would just step up and pick up 30% of the game, that would be great. But in reality, um, I think if if you don't long-term want to uh, 
have this pang of guilt and um, and sadness that, man, I just wish I had done more as a father, then you you probably ought to pick up your game now. Let's see if you could be 100% parent, right? So instead of dividing our parental duties, I mean, I guess you can divide the duties 50-50, but in reality, we need to be 100% parent and in 100% of the time if we can be, right? So let me give you some tools and some rules for how you can uh, co-parent and put the co in co-parenting. Um, Again, number one, remember that all systems reflect their creator. It's one of my favorite topics or or, uh, quotes is that if you don't like your co-parenting system, then know that it it may be reflecting you. And what I mean by that is a lot of times when I have a a client come in and maybe the mom tells me how her husband is never involved, he never seems to make any decisions with the kids, he never picks up his half of the game – Um, A lot of times what I find, though, too, is uh, one partner that's disinterested and disconnected and another partner that's so active that uh, it creates a really weird system. So think about it. If I know that my wife is going to do everything for my kids all the time, and then why wouldn't I just naturally pull out and stop? If I know that my wife is going to drive every carpool and drive every time we have to pick up our kids – then why would I not just naturally stop? Well, because you should naturally tell her that you want to drive with her and da-da-da. The reality is it's a system. So if you want more help, you probably need to ask for help. If And what you might find out is for some of us, the reason our partner doesn't help is because whenever they do, it's never right. Whenever they do, it's not the way you would do it. Whenever they do – We didn't do it exactly the way you thought it needed to be done. So you may need to lighten up a little bit on your co-partner, your co-parenting partner, and ask them specifically for what you need. You might also want to get on the same parenting page. Sit down and talk about what you really want to be as parents. Imagine yourself as grandparents. What do you want your kids to say about you as, as you are, let's say, you know, retired and grandparents, how do you want them to remember their childhood with you? What roles do you want to play? What are you willing to sacrifice? Are you willing to sacrifice your workout to help your partner? Are you willing to put your workout later in the day so that you can run the kids to school in the morning? Then you might want to sit down after you have these discussions with your partner and actually identify what after you've identified what you want to become, rank yourself on a scale from one to ten. How effective are you being as a parent when it comes to being the fun parent or when it comes to setting and, and spending time discussing stuff uh, and discussing goals with your kids? Whatever it is you want to achieve with your children, measure it. How well are you currently doing it? Are you helping them with homework? Well, no, my wife does that. But if you want to be the father that is remembered as the father that was there and helped with homework, you better make sure you're doing it. Another tool I would suggest in in blending and and co-parenting better together is sincerely leverage each other's strengths. There are certain things that your wife does better than you do. My wife is much more organized, much more uh, seemingly has more energy, kind of a never-ending abundance of it. I might be able to handle certain pressured situations differently, maybe even better. It might be something I might be able to do better. So maybe what we could do is let one parent do what they do really well, maybe keeping the schedule 
and the other parent might need to still be reminded that they might be really good at uh, making whatever is on the schedule more fun, more involved, more um, active. If you're an active parent, then let your partner use their strengths of being active. If, uh, if you're a planner, let that partner be the planner. If one of you is really good at math, let's use those strengths. Let's not pretend that we all have to be everything to our kids. Let our strengths lead. And, and, and instead of you know being mad about the differences, leverage the differences. Remember, the goal is to hear four positives to every negative. So I'm much more inclined to be active in my co-parenting with my children if I see that my wife sees – that is that I'm using my strength and that I'm doing all I can do in our relationship. Also, make sure you use routines to eliminate reminders. Sometimes um, we reinvent the wheel every night, but we already know every night our kids need to go to bed. So it's a perfect time to have a bedtime routine. We already know they're going to need to brush their teeth. We already know that we might say a prayer as a family and we might uh, you know, maybe read a book together. So use the routine as the way to have to constantly remind your partner. Maybe it is dad's dad every night, dad goes and helps with brushing of teeth and getting the kids to bed. And if that's the case, then use the routine of it. We will be doing that everywhere we go. As long as our kids need to brush their teeth and have teeth, let's use that routine of the bedtime routine. Also the morning routine, also the weekend routine. Have you created a Saturday morning routine? Is there something that you can do to get your kids out of bed, like just making a really awesome breakfast? If my kids know that they're going to have a great breakfast, they're much more inclined to pop out of bed. Then after breakfast, we all go out and we weed. (laughs) That could become the routine or we do our chores. But use the routine instead of having to constantly create reminders and, and, you know, nag each other. The fifth and final uh, point for putting the co in the word co-parenting is remember that the apple does not fall far from the tree. Remember that the more you understand your spouse or your co-parent that you're working with, the more you will understand your children. Your genes flow from your spouse and from you into your children. So that means they share his DNA, his idiosyncrasies. And if you notice that he's hard to motivate, then you're probably going to find out that some of your kids are really hard to motivate too. So use... Use your understanding of your spouse and your understanding of your children to motivate both your spouse and your children. We have to crack the code in our families instead of cracking the whip. Many times we spend too much time trying to create new forms of motivation instead of just simply understanding the people that we're trying to motivate. Remember, in order to influence someone positively, you must first be influenced by them. And uh, no better way to be influenced by your spouse than to understand what their strengths are, what their goals are, what their dreams are as a parent, and then start working toward those goals together. Powerful stuff, folks. Uh, We'll take a break, come back, continue the journey. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. I walk through the streets and I Welcome back, friends. Ah, you know, if you're if you're a driver, pay attention. Pay attention to this next story. Even for seasoned police officers, this one is for the books. A man trying to run from police 
driving through a gate and right into the parking lot of the Bremerton, Washington police headquarters. Well, you know, I've seen a lot of things, but uh, this gets up there on the list of uh, now I've seen it all, said police captain Tom Wolf. Ah, these kids nowadays. It all started. Wow. Ooh. Ugh. It's a bad accident. It all started when an officer spotted 24-year-old Bradley Farley sleeping in a stolen car around 630 in the morning. Uh, Thursday, it was in an alley just outside the Bremerton Police Headquarters. When police approached him, Farley turned on the car, hit the gas, and drove through the gate and right into the department's parking lot, according to investigators. He then made a sharp right turn, speeding toward a second locked gate, and then kept on going. Then plowed his way out of the gate down the street where he struck another citizen's car, ended up crashing. Uh, His car got out of the car and ran away. Farley. Was, it, was it that Farley? Yeah, it was a different Farley. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was a different Farley. Uh, Farley was quickly captured. Police impounded the vehicle, which was stolen from Olympia. It was covered um, with scratches and dents, missing a few parts after the crashes. Inside, investigators found license plates stolen from unmarked Washington State Patrol car that were parked at the office a few miles away. So he'd been stealing license plates, apparently. Police said Farley told them he planned on return. I, I was going to return those plates. I mean, are you, are you, oh, you thought I was going to take those plates? No, I just, I just took them off. I just wanted to see them, and I was going to return them later. Once he discovered that they belonged to state troopers, he's like, yeah, I was for sure going to return them then. He was booked into jail despite all the crashes. No one was hurt. But, you know, as if one fence isn't enough, one gate isn't enough, now the police have to replace two gates. Come on. Mm. These kids nowadays. What have, you, have you ever stolen a license plate? No. That's good. Have have you? No. That seemed awkward. Like that was a, a pregnant pause, right? Well, there. I didn't steal them because I gave them back. So you you removed license plates, which I think is a, is a it's a, at least a misdemeanor if it doesn't belong to you. And then you borrowed it for a time, and then you took it back. the The, the point of the story is they were returned, so that's not stealing, right? That's the point. I don't know anymore. Yeah. It seems like that's not the point. The point would be not to take them at all. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what you're trying to teach your kids. Like what would what would Sloss think if he heard the dad had stolen some? Well, sometimes, you know, your license plate goes missing. Not You I, need to replace it. I mean, I've never had a license plate go so missing. So you just replace it temporarily while you're locating where your plate is. All right. So I just thought that was kind of what everybody did. So if you're a police officer and you want more information on this story, <laughs> give us a call, one eight five five, 855 chat And uh, you can find Jeffrey going home in about an hour and a half from right now. Watch out for the seagulls. Here's Yoda as we, as we leave for this next hour. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show helping you uh, take back your life.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hope you had a great holiday, 4th of July, if you celebrated it and uh, were able to get away from work. Good on you. That's great. And uh, today we're doing what we can to lighten your load. It's kind of a weird week because you can't. Rem- it feels like a Monday, but it's really a Wednesday. Actually, so you're halfway there. Yeah, I cannot wrap my head around what day it is. I know you keep asking if we need to take the garbage out today. I know. I don't know what that's about. It's kind of strange. Hey, we've got a great uh, program for you. So much to cover. We'll be doing a lot of empty news this hour. Empty news. Uh, Matt Townsend news, we call it. It's news you didn't even know you needed to know, because here at the Matt Townsend Show, we do everything we can to get you all the latest, most important information and facts into your life so that you can then utilize this data to create the best life ever. Today, I think we'll have a chance to talk about mosquitoes. Are you maybe you're a magnet for mosquitoes? Yeah. Maybe for some reason they just love your blood. It's so sweet and delicate. Don't they tend to go for people that maybe have a little more meat on their bones? I don't know. It seems like, yeah, I mean, you don't want to be a mosquito drilling into somebody's, like, wrist with just no skin there, no meat. But maybe it's more about your smell. Maybe there's something about just the richness and yumminess. Maybe maybe you've got a lot of sugar on board. So maybe they're like, mmm, this one is like a – this is like just eating some fruity nectar. Well, maybe they'll go for me because I yesterday drank an A&W root beer from uh, Kitchen Fried Chicken. Uh-huh. And those, my wife pointed out, are made with cane sugar and not the high fructose, high fructose uh, yes. corn syrup that's made in the, the store-bought A&W. So, that, yeah, that's why if you taste the A&W with cane, it, uh, cane sugar, it's, it's a little – it kind of has a hint of Hawaii in it. So good. Mm-hmm. Um, versus uh, the little hint of corn. Yeah. yeah. It's got a corny flavor to it if you buy it in the store. It's quite corny. Plus, we'll be talking about two cops that uh, I think put a really good image on being a police officer. Police officer is about, you know, getting into the community, policing. Great story coming up um, about some cops that, uh, you know, responding to a noise complaint. complaint. They turned it into a chance to change and, and and strengthen the community. Can you can you imagine somebody yesterday calling up the police complaining about noise? Excuse me, I hear bombs going off. And they're very rude. They've been doing this for hours now. I feel bad for the dogs. How many millions of dogs were in were being tortured last night? You know what? I thought I saw something on the news where they were giving you ideas for how to protect your pets because a lot of pets go missing because they get so frightened oh, by all away. the noise, they run yeah. away. Yeah. Well, I think you really – and I don't know how you do it, but you probably ought to you know, sedate them. I, I like to give mine t- um, turkey because turkey has a natural kind of sedative in it. Oh, what is that? Um, I can't remember. Do you remember? It's tryptophan. Tryptan. Tryptophan. Trip, trip, trip to memory lane. Trip, and, and they just puts them to sleep. So I just give them a little turkey. And then he just he just dozes off, and then I just lock him away in the kennel. Actually, I don't have a dog, so all of that was made up. If you are a member of PETA and you're listening, um, <laughs> his name is Matt Townsend. But the PETA thing, I mean, I'm feeding him 
turkey. And I don't know that you can do faux, faux turkey. Well, you're drugging you, him is really what you said. Yeah, but I'm, I'm with a natural turkey drug. We call it sleepy turkey. Sleepy turkey. Mm-hmm. Anyway, lots of ways to help your dogs. Uh, we still have one more holiday in the month of July, Pioneer Day here in Utah. So July 24th, we'll be back to fireworks again. So I'm just setting people up that still need to, you know, take the edge off for their dog. Don't use any other drug because that's not healthy. Instead, just use turkey. Hmm. It does a body good. There's a buffer zone on those fireworks too. Like you can do it for a few days before and a few mm-hmm. days afterwards. Yeah. I I think, again, uh, I, I look down on Salt Lake Valley – Maybe Literally one, or I just really figuratively? Oh, I, no, I always look down on them. <laughs> no, so I was up watching the fireworks, but I was above all the noise too. So maybe what you do is you know, get above the noise, get in a high rise maybe, or uh, you know, get in a helicopter, an airplane. Know where you'd rather be when fireworks are going off than in an, uh, uh, something flying in the air. You really feel like you're under attack. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Leave it to you to feel... Like you're above everything. Yeah. Literally, not figuratively. Literally. Those were your words. I was literally above everybody. We'll get to all that fun, plus uh, other, you know, assorted topics that uh, you didn't even know you needed to know. Plus, we'll talk with our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, find out how they're doing. Utah, for example, just found out that they lost uh, their Gordon, they lost Gordon Hayward to Boston Celtics in a trade. No, 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 no. Free agency. Or, sorry, a free agency. But it's, it's a crazy... It's a crazy game that's being played here. The West is looking really good. The East lost a lot of its talent. Right. They all moved West. Yeah. It's like it's like a, a new gold mining movement. Go West, son. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, we'll find out. All that straight ahead, plus a hero of the day, of course. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's up? Ford Motor, General Motors, and Hyundai reported U.S. sales drops last month, apparently dragging the industry to its sixth straight month of declining numbers as auto sales slow from last year's record pace. Ford says its sales declined 5.1%, while GM was off 4.7%. Korean automaker Hyundai says the sales dropped 19.2%. Whoa. Analysts are predicting the overall June drop of more than 2%. If the industry's June sales fall as expected, sales for the first half of the year would be down for the first time since the financial crisis of 2009. So, Matt, Mm. buy a car. I just did. Well, get another one. Don't bring that up. Buy one of them American cars. Rumors of Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy's forthcoming retirement are swirling. Really? And though Kennedy has yet to make any public statements over his plans, NPR reports that he privately suggesting a retirement date in 2018 or 2019, safely within President Trump's first term and thus guaranteeing Trump a second SCOTUS seat to fill. Ah. While he long ago hired his law clerks for the coming term, in the story notes, he has not done so for the following term beginning October of 2018. <gasps> This is crazy. And he has let applicants for those positions know that he is considering retirement. Uh-huh. So word is leaking out that this is going to happen. This is... By the way, uh, didn't you have a problem with the SCOTUS seat? Uh, yeah. Okay. SCOTUS, I thought that was more of a disorder. It is. Yeah, okay. I've had that. SCOTUS? Local authorities and neighbors are amazed after a five-year-old boy not only survived a fall from a seventh-floor window Saturday, but Ooh. got up and walked away. What? 
An angel caught him with the tree, neighbor Ann Varela told CBS Boston station WBZ. The boy was leaning on a screen of a condo in Quincy, Massachusetts, when he fell. According to to his police, the fall was broken by a tall tree before he hit the ground. The child, who never lost consciousness, was taken to a local hospital. He is like a real miracle. I think his guardian angel was definitely there, said a neighbor. That is a total miracle. Yeah. I mean, imagine how hard you fall. And then a tree, bam, 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 and then you land on the ground. And he's like, wah! Oh, man. And then you know what he's thinking the minute he... Let's do it again. No, he's like, no. oh, mom's going to kill me. Yeah, I think he was thinking, ow, that really Oh, hurt. that is crazy. And finally, earlier this summer, Oreo launched the hashtag MyOreoCreationContest. Let fans dream up their own flavors. They're doing They're at it again. So now the ideas have been flowing for like two months. Oreo has started surprising people with a sample of what their creations would actually taste like. So far, <laughs> they surprised fans with prototypes of flavors. Now we have to judge them. So here we go. Ready? Okay, let's go. Here we go. Carrot cake. Mm, I love carrot cake. Would that, be, not, would not that be an Oreo? Oreo. That doesn't Oreo? seem like a good Oreo. Okay. Um, unicorn, because everything has to be rainbow. Oh, for sure. Okay. Maybe it tastes like uh, fruity pebbles. I've never eaten a unicorn. Right. Kind of like chicken. <laughs> um, cherry cola? Yeah, that'd be good. Okay. Raspberry Danish? Mm, yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> Pineapple upside down cake? Okay. Well, we'll, <laughs> yeah. we'll jump right to the yes okay, on that one. Yes. Uh, salted caramel? No. No? I don't know. Salt... Because they wouldn't use real caramel. This would be artificially. I mean, I get like maybe flavored. a little, maybe you need a little apple in there too, a little salted apple caramel. Yeah. That would taste a lot better than some of these others he's mentioning. Yeah. yeah. Except the um, there's one that they're uh, kind of on the fence for. Uh huh. Avocado. <clears throat> what about an avocado flavored one? No. I'm not. I mean, don't get me wrong, California avocado growers, I love you. Well, they wouldn't be using actual avocados. But, or but the, the flavor of avocado. And yeah. it, the, the frosting already has the, the, the kind of the, what's it called? The sense, you, you already feel like you're eating an avocado. Just hmm. the texture, the, the texture of it all. Yeah. So. What about nut and honey? No. Kind of a peanutty, no? Okay. I don't, I'm not feeling And uh, was there one? Oh, popcorn. What about a popcorn-flavored Oreo? I mean, is this really the best they can do? That's uh, what they have. Because I guess what they're still doing, though, is they're still going to have the dark, kind of the chocolate wafers, and then they're just changing the flavor in between. Maybe what they really need to do is get other flavors, you know, for instead of having a chocolate wafer, yeah, you need, you know, the, to me, you could have... Uh, carrot cake wafer with the frosting of carrot cake. Ah, oh, mm. now you're talking. Cooking with fire. Cooking with fire. Or gas. Hey, speaking of cooking with fire, mm. uh, North Carolina police officers have become my heroes. So they get called out to uh, two Carolina uh, officers get called out because of a noise complaint. Um, in Asheville, North Carolina. When they arrived, they noticed that the noise level was acceptable. It's just a bunch of people having fun. And it was literally just the sound of kids playing, which was probably so foreign to so many of us that we were like, what's all that racket? 
just the kids playing. Well, the officers, Joe Jones and Carrie Lee, decided to join in the fun, and they they got in a slip and slide that was put together at a neighborhood block party. So this one, by the way, the, the male cop, uh, Joe Jones, is huge. He's got to be, I don't know, six, eight. He's huge. And he gets, he gets in, in his uniform, fully uniformed. He gets in a big tube and then goes down the slip and slide with a kid. And they're just having tons of fun. And then Carrie Lee did the same thing. She got in a tube and went down. And, you know, he, his, his rear end was wet. But he's like, got a little wet. Then the cop's gun went off. And, no, no. no the guns were great. They were all <laughs> holstered. And But how cool that you go there because of a complaint and then all of a sudden these cops show that they're cool enough to just stay and do the slippery slide. That's pretty cool. I mean we need more of that for heaven's sakes. And this guy, this Joe Jones man, he is – he's just enormous. And he's standing – either he's enormous or everybody that he's standing next to are just tiny little people. So look at him. He's got to be six something. Sheesh. Anyway, super cool. So we're going to put that on our Twitter page because you know what? Times are tough anyway. And if you can bring communities together with law enforcement, how cool is that? A noise complaint because these in the kids, middle of the day from kids enjoying themselves. What's, like seriously, what's all that racket? No, that's just kids playing. Uh, it's two in the afternoon. <laughs> Who doesn't love a Summer, slippery slide? Too? It's summertime. Right. Come on. We're all just friends here. Nobody needs to. Nobody needs to get in trouble. Um, let's see. Uh, I got to tell you this one. Um, lar- the world's largest collection of Hello Kitty memorabilia was designed to appeal to young girls, but its biggest fan may just be adult Japanese man. Sixty-seven-year-old Maseo. Gunji has been collecting Hello Kitty memorabilia for the last 30 years. He recently acknowledged by Guinness Book of World Records as the owner of the largest Hello Kitty collection in the world. This is a man. This is a man. Okay. His, his, his obsession really kicked in after he retired from the police force. With plenty of time on his hands, Maseo Gunji started buying the Hello Kitty memorabilia. Anything he could get his hands on, he bought him in department stores, supermarkets, discount stores. Anyway, he built a Hello Kitty house, decorated it with thousands of themed items. Uh, as of November last year, he was uh, all of his collection was appraised. The 67 year old said that he currently has over 10,000 Hello Kitty items. But that for the certification of the Guinness World Record, he was asked to select a number of them that could be counted in an eight hour period. He settled for 5,250 of his Hello Kitty themed things. 81 that the things that he presented were rejected, but even then he still had 5,169 uh, Hello Kitty objects. Unbelievable. Man. I mean, apparently not married. Like how long how long would Maybe your, he's got kids. Well, I mean, would but would your wife, my I mean, oh, you got another Hello Kitty thing today? Okay. Hmm. I mean, how long does that go? She's still waiting on that bracelet, that the diamond Kitty. bracelet. Oh, the diamond. Yeah. Yeah. Hello Kitty bracelet. No, instead of him spending it on Hello Kitty memorabilia. But you know it's going to come back as a Hello Kitty diamond tennis bracelet. Unbelievable. Uh, I mean, I guess you can collect anything, sure. So why not Hello Kitty? He's probably, it's probably worth hundreds of dollars. 
collect anything, and it'll end up in the record books. That's right. See, there's always something for you. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, our very own uh, BYU professor, Dr. Brian Willoughby, will be joining us. And uh, we're going to be talking about his new book, The Marriage Paradox. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, folks. In studio with us is Dr. Brian Willoughby. He's an associate professor in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University. And we've been talking about this book forever, but now it's officially out. The Marriage Paradox is the name of the book, Why Emerging Adults Love Marriage Yet Push It Aside. And uh, who better to, to, to talk about it than the author himself, Dr. Brian Willoughby. Thanks for being here. Good to be here again. So you did it. It's out. It's out. You wrote the book, I guess, with Spencer L. James. Yes. And the name of it's The Marriage Paradox. Talk about why that. Why are we calling it The Marriage Paradox? Yeah. So so the idea of the book came after several years of studying young adults in their 20s. And one of the things myself and others that have studied this area have, have noticed, obviously, is something we all know, which yeah. is the marriage trends in the United States and other places have been changing. People are getting married later. They're getting married less often. You know, there's, there's been this general retreat from marriage. And so a lot of people then assume that, well, young adults must not like marriage anymore. Right. They're they not must doing, hate it. What's yeah. the deal? But one of the interesting findings for us is that from the baby boomer generation and even far back, if one of the things that we track is how many people think that marriage is important. So ask young adults, ask adolescents, ask. do you think marriage is important? That percent has not changed at all. So marriage they, is just as is perceived as just as important as it yes. ever has been. Yep. If you go back again to the 50s, 60s, 70s, marriage was ranked as just as important then as it is to modern young adults that are growing up today. Yeah. And that made no sense to us. Why are they saying – because if anything, it's actually gone up a little bit. Yeah. So why are they saying that marriage is so important to them? It's something they want to do, <laughs> they, they're expecting to do. But every other trend we look at suggests that they're retreating from marriage. They're not. So they, they, they honor it. They think it's to be revered. They want to get married, but right. no one's doing it. Right. And so, so the book was the, the product of several years of research that I did looking at a group of young adults and, and looking at some national data sets to try to answer that question, what is going on? Mm. Why are we seeing this? Why are, why are young adults today – not getting married even though they say they want to. That is – I mean it, I, there's the paradox. It right. seemingly contradicts but it's actually happening. And in the idea – I could almost see that it would go up because mm-hmm. it's almost like they know more about marriage than we right. maybe did or our parents' generation would ever know mm-hmm. about. Because they there's research. They, yep. They're on Facebook. They get the <laughs> latest stream. They hear the yep. latest study. They've got all this information at their fingertips. And is that the problem is they just have too much information? Not necessarily, actually. Is there's there's actually lots of things going on, which yeah. is why we had to write a whole book about it. But at the heart of it, there's there's several kind of overlapping paradoxes in their mind, right? We call it the mar- marriage paradox to talk about just what we were just saying that they say marriage is important, but they're not doing it. But as I did, a lot of the book is is giving stories of interviews that I did with young adults, mm. talking to them about marriage, and as I did that. I found that they have a lot of paradox in how they're approaching marriage. There's a lot of uncertainty in their mind that covers a lot of different things as they think about marriage. But one of the biggest things, and this is something we've talked about before on the show, is that the 20-year-old period now is very confusing to them. Right. And there's a lot of anxiety. And I think as we talked about last time I was on, there's a lot of choice. 
And that choice is really throwing them for a loop right now. And it's introducing a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety when it comes to relationships because you're right. They have all this information on their fingertips yeah. and we, we kind of give it to them and say, okay, now you should be able to choose a marriage partner way better than your parents could right. because you've got more information. You've got access to way more people, right? It used yeah. to be just whoever's around my town. Now I've got pretty much anyone and don't make a mistake because it could ruin your life. <laughs> and uh, yeah. So that it's it's they have the choice, they have the freedom, they they know the consequences. Mm-hmm. Now go, but don't right. blow it because right. this will kill you. And then the other big factor to all of this is that our young adult population has completely embraced the idea of moral relativism, hmm. which is do whatever feels right, and every person knows what's best for them. And where that comes into play for marriage is that the young adults now are going into the marital process thinking really only about what's best for me. Yeah. But also realizing that the people I'm dating, I want them to do what's best for them. Right, right. So I have to find some magical (laughs) person out there that what's best for them and what's best for me lines up perfectly, which is actually why one of the things we talk about in the book is the idea of soulmates – is actually just as strong, if not stronger today, than it ever has been. Really, that, that there is this one soulmate that will complete them. Right. And it's not necessarily like there's one, only one person out there in the world. There might be three. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a small group, but there's, there's some group of people out there that are going to perfectly mesh with me that I'm searching for. Interesting. And uh, do, do you debunk that then? Yeah, we talk about that. We, we, we talk about, again, the, the paradox of that of wanting to have a healthy marriage and wanting to build something. We know all the research suggests that to have a healthy marriage, you have to build from a foundation, work together, learn to, to work through each other's weaknesses yeah. and, and how different that is than going into the dating process and, and kind of having more of a shopping mentality, right? It is, you know, like when you're shopping for fruits, fruits or vegetables, you're picking them all up and, oh, that one has a little spot. You know, I'm, there's a perfect apple in this bushel somewhere. Yeah. There, and I will find it. It's perfect and it's yeah. there and you'll know it when you see it. Right. And and I guess simultaneously they'll know it, right? Because mm-hmm. you would be good for them; mm-hmm. they would be good for you, exactly. And yet they're still, and yet they're still. You you date who you know. You mm-hmm. date who's in your circle. So I've always that's what I've always been amazed yeah. about with a soulmate is the world is seven billion strong, right? And yet you find your soulmate, right. you know, at your high school. Yeah, and that was that was another interesting finding that we had in the book is that we do have this assumption that young adults have. All of these people they could date and we've got social media yeah, and we've got all these online dating sites. But they actually talked to me a lot about, particularly those that were in their mid-20s, of feeling very restricted. Because what they said is now our, our modern culture, and this is what we talked about last time I was on, in college is a hookup culture. Yeah, you just go hook up. So when I'm in college, I'm not in a serious relationship. I'm not thinking about marriage. Right. I'm, I'm hooking up and having casual, fun relationships. And they think to themselves, well, marriage is important. So when I'm done with college and I get my career – that's then we'll get serious. Yeah. But our modern workplace is not conducive to finding a romantic partner. That's true, huh? Is more and more of these young adults are in cubicles. They're in isolated positions. They might interact with a couple people. They're working longer hours. They feel like they've got to work as hard as they can to move up the corporate ladder. Yeah. And then they've added all these other things too. Is that, well, now I've got to exercise four or five times a week. I want to still have fun. I right. still want to have my social life. I, I need to have all these things. And what they were telling me in their 20s is, where am I going to find anyone? I don't want to do the bar scene anymore. Yeah, I'm not around, you know, I'm not in college classes where I'm hanging out. 
and social, I feel very isolated. That's what they said. Interesting. So they actually are – it's almost – because if you would seem like if they were getting married at 22 while they're in college and there's this – in a way, less pressure, it seems like, and more systems to like be hanging around people like mm-hmm. you. It seems like that would be better, but they actually believe they should marry later. Right. But when they're, when they're marrying later, mm-hmm. they don't have the social system set up to right. find the people. Yeah. One of the ways, and I, 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 now that I'm thinking about it, I should have put this in the book, but a, a metaphor that really fits with what I was finding is if you think about the dog track and the carrot, right, that yeah. they're throwing out yeah, and the yeah. dog's chasing, they never get it. Get it, get it. Marriage has kind of become that for young adults. It's always the thing they want to do in a year or two. Yeah. When they're in their early 20s, it's, well, I'm too young. I'm getting my degree or I'm, I'm establishing my independence. I'll do it in a couple years. In well, a couple years, well, I, you know, I'm, I don't sure I'm really ready. I need to save some more. I'm figuring my career out maybe in a couple years. And then what happens for a lot of them is, and again, this is a little outside of the, the group I was studying in my book, but when they get into their early 30s, there's almost this kind of panicking that can like, happen. Ah, like, my clock. My clock. I'm running out of time. And then one, one of the things we know about the current generation is those that are getting married, particularly in their late 30s, are less happy than they ever have been. Before. Really? And I think a lot of that is, is due to that settling of, well, I, you know, marriage was really important. I want to do it. So I guess this is what I'm going to settle for. It's interesting. And, but yet we, as their parents and society, we look at them like they don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Like they're just anti, right. you know, social systems and structures, but they really want it. It's yeah. just they also have believed all of these other ideas. Right. Yeah. And as, as we've talked about before – Marriage to them now is a very different thing than it was for their parents' generation. Yeah. It's no longer – we talk about marriage as an institution, yeah. a societal good, something that helps structure our society. Young adults today don't think about it in those mm-hmm. terms. They don't think marriage – I don't do marriage for everyone else. I do marriage for, for me. me. It's like the crowning jewel right. of my development. Yeah, it's it's what I'm going to do to make me happy, to give me a fulfilling life. Interesting. Connected to parenting still for a lot of them. Um, but when when marriage is about me and not because it's something I'm supposed to do or for this larger institutional good, it really changes the approach hmm. to marriage. Totally. Does do you see these? Uh, do, does the same research parallel general you know dating of emerging adults as compared to? like more religious-focused institutions, like at BYU. Mm-hmm. Are, are students at BYU marrying as late as other students? Or people at Notre right. Dame, are they marrying as late? Mm-hmm. Or, or, is, or do we kind of blow up some of these other myths? A little bit, yeah. We, we still have pockets of religious communities and on religious campuses, as you mentioned, where the dating environment is, is still different, more traditional. Now, all these trends we're talking about are still there. Yeah. They're just slower. I always tell my students here – that all the students in religious communities, they're going the same direction, same mentality. It's just, like I said, a little bit slower. Well, I always typically ask my students when we're talking about this, I say, you know, raise your hand if you want to be really happy and satisfied in your marriage. And all their hands Everybody. shoot up. I say, let's, let's recognize that that's kind of a new thing yeah. that, that has been developing over the last 100 years. But you go back to your great-grandparents, they, that was this nice byproduct. Yeah. And for a lot of them, they say, well, that's, that's great. We've evolved, right? I don't, have, I don't feel forced into marriage anymore. But the, but the religious communities can have some unique elements to them because there is still a little bit more of a marriage focus. In fact, one of the chapters of the book that I wanted to make sure I got in there is so much of the book is talking about these trends of delay and why the delay is there. But we did have a group of, of young adults that I interviewed and studied that did get married early. Hmm. It wasn't very many of them. 
but I dedicated a whole book or chapter of the book to just telling four of their stories and said, let's let's look at some of these young adults that are – and I called it the counterculture because it yeah. is counterculture yeah. to get married in your early 20s now. And the interesting thing is they weren't all religious, but most of them were. Oh, interesting. And they talked about marriage actually in a very different way. They talked about marriage in a very almost sacramental, sacrificial mm. way. Most of the young adults I talked to, again, talked about marriage as a, this is about me and I'm going to find someone and they're going to make me happy. and But I don't want to give up anything in my life to do Right. And these young adults were talking much more about – and it was interesting. I pointed this out in the book. They would talk about things not in terms of I but in terms of we. So hmm. most of the young adults said, well, I, I'm not sure I want to get married or I'm struggling yeah. with this relationship I'm in because I want to go do that internship in New York. Right. And I want to have a career in X, Y, and Z. And these young adults are getting married. I can particularly remember one of them that we talked about in the book as a story. And it was a, a religious couple and – fairly conservative where the the husband, who, which is who we were interviewing, was the one that was pursuing his education. The wife was um, staying home with a young child. But he still talked about how we had decided that I was going to go to graduate school here. Oh, interesting. And we had decided that we were going to do yeah. this. And so everything in his mind was not about his personal decision, but about their decision hmm. that they had talked to together. And it, was, it very much stood in contrast to how most young adults talked about their life Interesting. Is... So does that mindset precede getting the drive to get married earlier or is that mindset because they got married earlier? I think it's probably a little bit of both. And then like I said, I think it's tied for at least a lot of people to that religious culture. I think a lot of religions do have people turn more outward. There's more of a service mentality. There is more of the sense that I'm looking at other people in the greater good. Not that non-religious people can't have that, but I think it's more common in religious communities. But then also it – it does force you when you get married earlier to think about those things yeah. in more a joint way. The we, not the I. Yeah. Powerful. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Brian Willoughby. The book is The Marriage Paradox, Why Emerging Adults Love Marriage Yet Push It, push it Aside. Interesting insights about uh, why the delay. Come on, just jump in with the rest of us. Anyway, interesting. We'll stick with it. Stick with us. We'll be back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. In studio with us, Dr. Brian Willoughby, uh, who is an associate professor in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University and is the author of the new book, The Marriage Paradox, Why Emerging Adults Love Marriage Yet Push It Aside. He wrote the book with Spencer L. James, and you can get it online. I mean, it's out there, The Marriage Paradox. Um, Brian, thanks for being with us. Yeah. Is, I mean, there are a lot of other things, a lot of advancements. I mean, we're now seeing children of uh, the the feminine, feminist movement, children mm-hmm. of the birth control movement, children. Right. I mean, these are kids that now are empowered at a level they've probably – we've never seen. Right. They've had which, everything. Which is interesting because that, that ties into another thing we found in the book that we talk about, which is – a lot of these young adults now have been told for their entire life, you're special and you're amazing <laughs> yeah. and we have big plans for you, right? They yeah. all believe that they're going to change the world. right? And, and one of the interesting things that we found that, we talk, that I talk about in the book is that when we talk about marriage being important, like I said, they all say that. But then they also say, but my career is going to be really important. 
And being a parent is going to be really important. Yeah, and, and you'll be a good one. Right. Right. And, and, and yeah, I'm going to be a perfect employee and mm-hmm. a perfect parent and a perfect spouse. That's usually what they go – they come out of kind of high school, adolescence, thinking those things. And one of the interesting things in the book and the study that the book's based on, it was a longitude and we followed them for three years. And what we noticed over the course of those three years is they had this realization as they were going through college and graduating and starting their careers. They realized that it's hard to do all those things. Yeah, and be perfect. Yeah, if I, <laughs> if I want to be a, a – if I want to have a perfect career and a good career and change the world, it takes a lot of time and a lot of energy yeah. to – to go into my education, get my education, get a higher degree, maybe a graduate degree, be, you know, work my way up that corporate ladder, as I said. And then they also have this idea that, well, if I want to be a perfect spouse, that's going to take a lot of time and I got to find the right person. Oh, if I want to be yeah. a perfect parent, well, it takes money and time and energy. And, and one of the kind of probably the saddest thing for me con- that I concluded in the book is for a lot of these emerging adults, they looked at those, particularly those three big areas, parenting, marriage and career. And they, they looked at it and said, I have to pick. Uh, I can't do all of the, these yeah, things. So go, get, go master one quickly, I right. guess. And, and for a lot of emerging adults in our modern society, because of a lot of these changes you said, they're picking careers. They said that's – you know, yeah, I want to get married. I yeah. love marriage. The idea of being a parent is, is amazing. But I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do it. Interesting. Because so, it seems like it's the – it's the keystone. It's the one right. – yeah, once you have a job, it holds everything in there. Right. But yeah. maybe marriage would be the keystone. Because they're, they're thinking to themselves, well, marriage doesn't pay very well. No, yeah. It's and, not so, great and, so, and so they're saying, I'm going to put my energy into a career right now and focus on that. And, and again, there's kind of this assumption that – and I kind of hope that one day yeah. marriage would happen. And to me, that's the biggest reason why I think we're seeing the marriage rates that we're seeing. Do you see – is there something we should be doing better as parents – so as not to set these kids up with some of these paradigms. Yeah. At the very end of the book, I talk about what can we do about this? You know, what, what can we do to reduce some of these paradoxes? And one of the things I talk about has to do with not just parents, but I, I generalize it to all of us yeah. as a society. We need to send better and more positive messages about marriage because emerging adults, and young adults, they, they want to get married. They think it's important, but they don't have very, very good models for what that looks right. like. And what they don't get is they don't really get any messages about how marriage can be a sacrifice that's good for them and good for society. Hmm. Most of our most of our parents right now are telling these young adults, well, yeah, you know, I, marriage is great, but don't let it get in your way, yeah. basically. Yeah. Or, and they're still dealing with a lot of parental divorce. And, and actually, one of the most common things I got was not parents were divorced, but parents should have been divorced. Mm. A lot of them told yeah. that to me in their interviews. I don't know why my mom and dad are together. They weren't happy. They fight they all the time. Other, right. They don't love each other. I never want that mm. in my relationship. And again, not that they never want yeah. to get married, right. but I want to find someone that's not going to do that. And so I think sending those more positive messages about marriage and being aware that we're sending messages to our kids through the media and the TV shows we produce, the movies, how we talk to them about marriage. You know, I mean, just think about how odd it kind of feels sometimes for us as a society of, of sitting down with my younger kids when they're yeah. teenagers and just talking about marriage and, and the importance of marriage and why marriage can help their lives and what I as a parent would hope they would get out of a marriage. We don't really do that. We don't do that. We, do, we don't hold it up. I mean, I guess it's almost it, – it's an institution. But mm-hmm. you can also talk about it not like an institution but, but right. as just – as so fundamental. It's yeah. so – it's core. Yeah. It, in fact, it really it's, it's even more core 
not more, but it's more at that stage than than your parenting anymore. I mean, mm-hmm. your parents may not be influencing you at 25 like right. my wife would. Right. Yeah, and there's all this re- – I mean, decades of research we have that suggests that marriage isn't just this this nice idea. It yeah. makes people live longer. It makes them make more money. It may, and it's, it's, so it, many it's things. almost like this magic wand in some ways that, that – again, it's not that you get married and all of a sudden a check starts showing up. But it motivates people. Yeah. When, I've, when I have someone else that I've interconnected my life with as a spouse and then even if kids come or, or don't come, it motivates people. Totally. It changes how you approach yeah. so much. At least it hopefully is. Well, yeah. And I mean and, and it's, it's good for both of you, right? Mm-hmm. It's not a one way. It's not just good right. for the guy. It's good for the guy and the gal. That's mm-hmm. powerful. The book is called The Marriage Paradox. You're going to want to get it. Why Emerging Adults Love Marriage Yet Push It Aside. And the author is Dr. Brian Willoughby, associate professor in the School of Family Life at BYU. You're going to want to check him out. Also go to his website, drbrianwilloughby.com, drbrianwilloughby.com. He's the man, the myth, the legend. Stick with us, folks. Uh, We'll be back talking to our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. Utah Jazz fans saying goodbye to Gordon Hayward as he goes to Boston. Now let's shoot it down to uh, two people that can hopefully make sense of all of this. And how did Danny Ainge pull off the steal? Uh, who better to help us than Spencer and Jason from BYU Sports Nation? Hello, gentlemen. Hashtag strong side. <laughs> hey, way to bring it down, Matt. I know. That yeah, was sad. That was, uh... But you know what? Danny Ainge pulls off a coup. He yeah. and the Celtics somehow snuck... Gordon Hayward away. Listen, it's not that complicated. Isn't I'm, it? I'm going to explain it to help you right Help us, now. help us, help us. Gordon Hayward said in his letter on the Players' Tribune, 2,100 words, if you were wondering. Man. But he just, he just he put that together real fast. You guys were day. counting words. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hey, 2,100 words. A few of those words said, I want to win a championship. Yeah. So that made me think. Well, if I'm Gordon Hayward and my number one priority is winning a championship, let me assess the Western Conference. Right. Golden State, Houston, Oklahoma City, San Antonio. Then the Eastern Conference, Cleveland. Cleveland. Yeah. Yeah, You can stop there. Crickets. (laughs) Yep, I'm going to Boston. I know, but you got to get through LeBron. Look, but I guess not getting statistically, past this year. statistically, it it's though. not about this year. It's yeah. about like three years from now. Okay, mm. LeBron's not getting any younger, and right. he might not even be in Cleveland after this year. He might right. go somewhere else. Maybe he'll go to Boston. It is a very interesting thing for for those fans who are BYU fans and Utah Jazz fans. Yes, it's it's a very interesting situation because. You love Danny Ainge. Right. But yet he essentially, what a jerk. by signing Hayward, set the Jazz franchise back totally. several years. Well, and, and he probably just lost the race for his son in the Tanner congressional Ainge. race. Yeah. Well, yeah. Hey, and here's the other part about it. Don't forget, Danny Ainge 
is and has been in the state of Utah for a couple of days because of the Utah Jazz Summer League. He is here today. Oh, my God. There is heavens. a basketball game tonight where he has to go and watch his Celtics. He's going to be harmed. Hey, and by the way, I yeah. fear for Danny Ainge, especially if the Ute fans. And it's there. at the Huntsman Center. So oh, is it really? like to throw things. Oh, my heavens. That's not good. But and that does make sense. He wants a championship. So, I mean, the West is, boy, what a what a pit. That's going to be the hardest, probably, don't you think, NBA uh, region, or not region, what do we call it, Western conference, conference ever. But it's, I mean, it's been this way for a long time. It's just gotten even more so in the last two or three years. Mm. The, 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 the East is just horrible. Should they Outside be offended? Of LeBron, that's it. Hey, should, but what about Toronto? Nope. <laughs> nope. And, nope. Should, should, should the East be offended that everyone's leaving? No, they don't care. Okay. No, and I think that uh, only, get rid of, only made Gordon Hayward feel better about his decision. They no, need to totally. get rid of conferences altogether and just take the best 16 teams. There you go. I like that idea. You know what I mean? Totally. Just just get rid of them. Do you think that will happen now? Um, you know what? Probably not because— But, but it'll, it, may, it seems like the playoffs will be so boring to watch. Well, I mean, that's kind of the way it's been the last couple of years because you knew who was going to end up in the, in the right. postseason in exactly. the finals. Exactly. Yeah, the that Western was the Conference second round will be whew, awesome. Mm-hmm. The Eastern Conference Finals will be interesting, yeah. but that's about it. Yeah, one game, one one series. In fact, somebody that was the comment they made. Well, after all of these trades or all, after all of these deals, what it comes down to is the Warriors against uh, LeBron and the Cavaliers for the championship next year. Do you so believe take that? All the suspense out of it. Yeah, no more fun. Just, yep. but uh, a lot of money changing hands too. A lot, like billions of dollars have been given to players in the last week. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. Gordon um, Hayward's making $32 million a year in Boston. Unbelievable. Plus, the added bonus of making more money, you know, selling other things. He'll be, he'll be, you know, the lead car dealer salesman now. He'll, he'll be doing everything. <laughs> Here's what I want to know, though. He has been on record. There's video proof of this. Him, he was asked a question, um, Aaron Rodgers or Tom Brady? He's like Aaron Rodgers. I hate Tom <gasps> Brady. Ooh, that's awkward. What about that first? That's encounter? awkward. Oh yeah, that's going to be weird. Re- I mean, now he's from Indianapolis, so he's yeah. a Colts fan. Yeah, there you go. But still, mm-hmm. like Tom Brady's the goat. He is the goat. You, the first <laughs> meeting between Hayward <laughs> and Brady is going to be awkward. That's right. It's going to be a. It's going to be a throwdown. I can already tell. Hey, uh, I got to let you talk about your show. What's going to be on your show today? Well, in the spirit of NBA free agency, we are asking all BYU fans to think beyond what the actual NCAA rules are. Oh, okay. Like, if BYU fans could woo a player away from another college, and it can be any sport just within the current landscape of college athletics, who would be your number one free agent to add to any BYU roster? Huh. That's a great question. Yeah, you want to make a run for a national championship? Who do you need? Who are you going to add? There you go. Now, again, that's if NCAA didn't have any rules. I mean, it's clearly yeah. – we're clearly violating rules here by doing this. But you're getting us In thinking. terms of, like, getting people to switch. <laughs> that's a great we're question. We're having fun with it. That's it the totally. whole point. It's, it's not real. Yeah. It's just having fun with it. We're the... having fun after Jason cried a lot of tears yesterday. Oh, did he cry? Oh, I'm so sorry it hit you that way. That's fine. I'm over it. The sun came up. That's good. It did. It did. With that smell of sulfur last night, too. (laughs) Um, Anything else on the show we should be paying attention to? Uh, Matt Brown. 
from uh, SB Nation is going to join us to to talk all things college football. Sweet, he's one of the opinion makers. Yes, and uh, and and we uh, a little game we like to call hashtag this. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, well, it's going to be lit today. I can hardly wait. <laughs> hashtag this straight ahead. Thanks, guys. Sounds like a great show with Spencer and Jason. You got it. You, you're going to want to catch it. BYU Sports Nation is the name of it, and it's just four minutes away. So get ready. Get locked and loaded. Holy cow. That's I, I didn't know that they could do that. Like, can you really say hashtag this? Apparently. Um, we talked about uh, mosquitoes earlier in the show. Are you a magnet for mosquitoes? Is there something about your blood or your smell that makes them attracted to you? Researchers are studying the way that twins smell for clues about genetic basis of insect appeal. So they've taken some twins, and now they're trying to figure out if when it comes to attraction, is, is there just something about you as an individual that smells uh, – that, that makes you a better target for mosquitoes? And uh, some of the research they're doing is it's, it's starting to show some promise that uh, some mosquitoes will actually go on the hunt and not stop until they find you. There's, That's scary. There's, there is a preference there. This month, a group of British researchers is launching a new investigation into the role of human genetics in this process. They're planning to collect smelly socks from 200 sets of identical and non-identical twins, place the footwear in a wind tunnel with bugs, and see what happens. Tell me that doesn't sound like a party, for heaven's sakes. The owners of the socks and the scientists hope that uh, they may naturally – Notice uh, or be able to, because of this study, produce an, an attractive or repellent chemical that would become the base the basis for future mosquito control efforts. So, if you happen to be a twin and you have smelly gym socks, you're going to want to go uh, subscribe to the Scientific American magazine, and then you can send in your your socks. And whatever you do, don't send them to us. Because we're not interested. Um, Florida man is going to be the hero of the day. Florida, we always kind of joke about how we hear all these crazy stories coming out of Florida. But today's story isn't crazy. It's a hero story out of Tampa, uh, Florida. Kenny Franklin became a heroic version of Florida man on Thursday, June 29th of 2017 on his way to work via Uber. Suddenly, his Uber driver suffered a seizure and while driving uh, his car on I-4 near Interstate 275. Franklin explains, his foot is accelerating on the gas and instantly I'm in the backseat wondering, okay, my life is pretty much over at this point. Somehow the driver was able to get to the uh, to get the car somewhat safely to the side of the road. Kenny jumps out of the vehicle as the disoriented driver begins fumbling around with the gears. A Florida Highway Patrol trooper, Jack Heights, shows up behind them to investigate the situation as the driver puts the car in reverse. The vehicle then pins trooper Heights underneath it. Are you kidding me? This all happened very quickly while Franklin's adrenaline was racing. Our brave Florida man used that adrenaline to lift the vehicle off of the trooper. Unbelievable. Saving the trooper's life. All three men that were involved are now fine. Kenny Franklin said, honestly, I was just somebody who was in a position to help in the right place at the right time. I'm glad that, uh, you know, I had something to do with the lives being preserved. Super cool and super humble. Kenny Franklin, you are the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for being in the right place at the right time. And, folks, that's really what makes the hero. You don't have to save a life. Sometimes you can just save, you know, someone's reputation, save somebody from embarrassment. 
save uh, somebody from feeling lonely, abandoned. Let's just step up for each other. It is a small world, and it gets even smaller when we just look human to human. So that's why we do the show, to help motivate you to see the good in the world. We'll be back tomorrow. More fun, 9 to noon Eastern, right here on BYU Radio. BYU Sports Nation is up next.